Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, it, we got a lot to get to because not only has it been like three weeks because of our recording schedule. Yeah. It's the time of year when I'm watching Tyler. I'm watching hella movies. Um, I wish I could say I was. I'm watching a good number of movies, but uh, a lot of them are rewatches because my brother-in-law was in from out of town. And oh, that's fun. So that's what happens is Jen and I say, like, you haven't seen this? Let's watch it. Um, but uh, do you... I, <laughs> this is completely off topic. Okay. Do you listen to podcasts? Sometimes. Not so much anymore. Okay. Do you ever listen to podcasts at faster than regular speed no oh, i don't okay. the idea of that bothers me I when do people say exclusively really when people say they do it for us uh, they might as well say they they listen to us through VidAngel. <laughs> um yeah i do uh i don't do it with comedy because i feel like comedy podcasts depend on like timing oh sure stuff. sure so it wouldn't work but for mostly sports podca- podcasts where i'm just looking for raw information i don't care like how they're talking but every once in a while i'll start a podcast that i've only ever listened to like fast Mm -hmm. at regular speed yeah and it sounds like the hosts are drunk yeah because i'm used to like oh they both had strokes (laughs) how did that happen so i just i don't know myself going howdy and welcome (laughs) to (laughs) that'd be fun um It's like that old, uh, it's like that old Pat Oswalt bit where he talked about the old, uh, uh, the chipmunks Christmas album uh-huh. and he and his friend, he and his brother would listen to it like slowed down. And so the chipmunks sounded like just regular guys <laughs> and then Dave sounded like a demon. <laughs> um, so <laughs> now before we get started, David, I had a celebrity sighting. This one could be rough. It could be hard to get, but if you get there, it'll be very exciting because this is like, he's not like an actor. See, I already said he, and I already said actor. Okay. Um, although you could kind of assume that. Um, but, uh, he's somebody that, uh, I always enjoy, but he doesn't, he won't come to mind immediately. So, okay, here we go. Okay. So male uh, actor, um, known more for TVs or movies. TVs. <laughs> oh, he does he sell TVs, TVs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on the side. Um, I would say movies, a, a little bit of both, but I'd say primarily movies. Uh, older than us. Yes. Uh, is he, um, okay. So he's older than us. Is he American? Yes. Is he a uh, Caucasian man? Yes. Does he have hair or is he bald? Has hair. Has hair. Mm-hmm. So how much older than us? Are we doing the yes or no questions? I can't remember what I, the... I think we're doing yes or no, oh, right? Okay. <laughs> I never know the rules to this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know them either. Okay, so he's American. Is he, is he funny? Is he known as a funny actor? I'd say yes, but not exclusively. John C. Riley? No. You're in the ballpark, I am kind the ballpark. of. Okay. So about that age, then? I'd say older. Older than, but John as far C. as the type of actor right. we're looking at, Richard Kind. No, <laughs> am I? You're, you're really up the right tree. Yes, very much so. Oh wow. Okay, so um, has he been in any big movies this year? Not that I can recall. Okay. I'll have to look it up. This is where I run out of uh, out of questions and just want to start guessing people that are mostly funny. Richard Jenkins? No. Oh, well, he has been in big movies this year, so what am I thinking? 
see. He's in Benicio del Toro's The Shape of Water. Did you see that? What? Oh. <laughs> the Rex Reed thing? Oh, no. Rex Reed's review of um, The Shape of Water listed Benicio del Toro, misspelled Benicio, by the way, <laughs> as both the writer and the director. And then also, this is like more what the fuck is wrong with you than funny. He described, wait, have you seen The Shape of Water yet? Not yet. Okay. Sally Hawkins' character is mute. Yes. That's it. She yeah. just can't talk. Rex Reed described her as mentally challenged. <laughs> You know, Rex. Okay, so looking at this, uh, okay. no, this guy was not in any uh, major uh, movies. He's done a lot of TV lately, now that I look at it. But a lot of, like, one-episode things. Huh. Uh, Jim Beaver? No. Um, it's going to... See, now that we're here, like, yeah. older character, older white character actors who've done... Who are known... Who can be funny but aren't necessarily known for like, there's a billion of them. Yeah. So this is, this could be very difficult. And I, all right, give me a clue. (sighs) Okay. This is, uh, maybe this clue is mean. I don't know. He's Jewish. Okay. I don't know why that would be mean. Is it David Pamer? No, but now you're really in the ballpark. Why do you mean? Just because it's like a weird thing to like latch onto, except that just like, some of the roles that he takes are kind of fit into that. Okay. Um, so someone in the David Paymer mold, like if someone <laughs> says, get me a David Paymer type, this guy's on the short list. Uh, he kind of, yeah, okay. I would say, okay. He's not quite as nebbishy as David Paymer, but he's, he's there. Hmm. Um, I'm going to need another clue. I'm not, I'm not good at this. Okay. Let's see here. Um, he is... Sorry, everybody. I know that you probably hate this, but uh, whatever. I'm too tired to apologize anymore. Okay. Um, he has been... This is... As I was thinking of yeses and nos, uh-huh. I thought, like, here's a question I'll ask from now on. He has been in a best picture. See, that is not going to help. But that's not helpful for you. It's very helpful for me. Um, um, okay. Is it Liev Schreiber? No, that's too old. Oh, that's too young. Too young. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah Paymer is what? He's 68. Wow, okay. Looking at his... Uh, oh, sorry, he is 69. Pardon me. Born nice. in 1948. So, I'm so trained by Twitter to say nice when someone says 69. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, I'm running out of uh, out of choices here. Um, Here's what I'll say: What decade was the best picture that he was in? Nineties released. Nineties. Okay. So, is he in Shakespeare in Love? No. Is he in I, Titanic? I no. <laughs> um, is he in American Beauty? No. Is he in what well, one in ninety six? I don't know. Is it, was it the one that won in 96? No. What year did it win? 92. And it's a movie that came out in 92 that won. Yes. In 93 then. Yes. I have no idea what won Best Picture in 92. It wasn't Ghost. It wasn't. That, that never won. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just trying to think of movies that came out around 92. Okay. Um, yeah, this isn't how those people out there have already gotten it. This is the part where people get, get annoyed because they've gotten it. And I'm bad. I'm very, very bad at this. Let's okay. Let's look at it this way. From a name standpoint, uh-huh. his being Jewish is a big deal. Specifically, first name. 
I don't understand what that means. Is his name Ira something? You're saying he has a, a traditionally Jewish name. Yes. Is it Ira something? No. <laughs> I'm out of, like, I'm out of Jewish. Oh, okay. Is it Benjamin something? No. David? No. What? A lot of... No, I know, I, I know. I'm not Jewish, but a lot of Jewish people are named David. No, I understand. Um, he was in True Romance. Let's try that. He was in True Romance. Though I don't remember him, but I haven't seen it in a long time. He's also one of those types of actors that is in, is in stuff, and he just kind of, He's like a... He's like a... Uh, yeah, see, I can't remember the name of the guy that... Saul uh, Rubinek? Like, yes. You don't remember him in True Romance? He's no, the, I he's don't. He's the big producer. Yeah. He plays those types of characters, which is one of the yeah. reasons why I brought up him being Jewish. Yeah, like he's, that, that's a tough one. I, it's very difficult, right? I can tell you no offense to Saul Rubinek, but if I saw Saul Rubinek, I probably wouldn't bother telling you. <laughs> See, and it was a big deal for me because, uh, as you know, I love character actors. And, uh, and just seeing him uh, in line in front of me at the place where I was getting a, a Christmas present for Jen, I was like, hey, Saul Rubinek and I uh, shop at the same store at the at the Grove. Oh, see, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah fun fact: this... he's about as tall as he is wide, which speaks <laughs> less to him being overweight and more to him being very short. Um, I am more likely to bring up a celebrity sighting if it's not like if I'm at a an industry event and there's a celebrity, I kind of tend to forget. I think because yeah. it's like you kind of expect. Um, although I don't know if I told, I didn't talk about it in the last movie journal. I didn't talk about the post because it was under embargo right, still. Right. Uh, both Fanning sisters sat uh, like three rows ahead of me and our friend Aaron Newworth. Uh, That's nice. At the screening of the post, um, I like that they hang out together. Somehow <laughs> yeah, I feel not, like they I shouldn't. honestly like had a very similar reaction. Like, oh, that's yeah. that's great. It's like when I saw, and I recognize that you know they're married, but like when I saw Warren Beatty and Annette Benning like at a movie that they paid for. Oh right, yeah. And I was like, it's date night for uh, for Beatty and Benning. Yeah. I wish I could remember the movie, but I remember when I worked at the Arclight over 10 years ago, this is obviously back when they were still together. Jenna Fisher and James Gunn came in to see oh, the nice. movie, um, uh, together. It was like a, like a weekday afternoon matinee. I remember that. Hmm. Um, but I cannot remember what movie it was. Let's say Zodiac. Sure. Let's just say they had good taste. In that Zodiac, works. Yeah. And that they weren't there to see starter for 10 or primeval. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think primeval <laughs> played at Arclight. Um, during that time or at all. I remember anyway. I, I remember I said like, Hey, if primeval comes to the arc light, I want to see it. Cause I'm a fan <laughs> of like those shitty creature features. Um, yeah, but okay. So sorry everybody. But, uh, and, and I'm sorry to you cause uh, Saul Rubinek is uh, not a big deal to you. No, but I, it's I, a big like, deal to me. The, the grocery store part is cool. Yeah. yeah. Although I'm, I think I told the story on here. My best like grocery store celebrity sighting was someone who we come up later in the show, Christopher Plummer once. Oh boy. At the Beverly Hills whole foods, which yeah. is probably a good place to see, uh, celebrities but uh he's the only one i think i've seen there but he was wearing a very nice overcoat over like workout clothes <laughs> that's nice um my best groceries because this was at a nice store i was buying uh like a really nice perfume for jen I she, she doesn't listen to this show so it's not a not a spoiler <laughs> not a christmas spoiler yeah. um but uh <clears throat> But as far as grocery stores, I saw John Polito at the Ralph's uh, it, near my old Blockbuster, which yeah. is now a bank. Um, but the, I probably the the, Blockbuster is not a bank. The Ralph's right, is still there. Still there, yeah. going strong. Um, but at another at another Ralph's in North Hollywood, I think I mentioned I saw Martin Landau. Yeah, I feel like that's a bigger deal. Um, 
is being seen by Tyler Smith at a Ralph's a death sentence? I guess so. <laughs> it's a good thing we were at Madewell, Saul Rubinek, because uh, you're in bad shape. So, okay. All right, let's get started. Um, I saw a movie. Now, Tyler, this uh, is, maybe this will be an episode um, uh, at some point, because something has happened twice this year. Okay. First with the Florida Project, and now with this movie, where I've been really into them, and I still really love these movies, even though the very ends of them... Uh, like literally the very end, you know, mm-hmm. the last few shots of the movie I don't like, Okay, but it doesn't ruin the movie for me. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't I, I feel like that would be a good episode if we could think of another example. I think so. Yeah. But, um, I think currently my favorite foreign language film of 2017 is, uh, Foxtrot. Okay. Um, based on the popular comic strip, I have to assume. <laughs> no, it's based on the dance. No, oh, okay. it actually is. <laughs> uh, there are multiple references to the dance, the Foxtrot, oh, okay. uh, in the movie. But um, uh, it's an Israeli film, and it takes place. It's a, it has a very, you know, very strict three-act structure, mm-hmm. where the first act um, takes place um, uh, not in real time. I think only the third act is in real time. But the the third, uh, the first act takes place entirely on the morning that a family have been informed that their son was killed in action mm-hmm. um, in the Israeli military. So that's the first part. The second part flashes back and shows you the son living at the military, like outpost, like roadblock where he was stationed. Okay. Um, up and, and, you know, gets up until that morning. And then the third act goes back to the family after an unknown amount of time has passed. Okay. Um, and also each one has a different main character. The first one is the father. The second one, obviously, is the son. And the third one is the mother. Mm-hmm. So that's the structure. Um, uh, but uh, what's what's important, I think, is not uh, the the story, but I think the, the way the film unfolds visually, which is kind of, it's full of beauty, but also it's um, kind of uh, often very stark and often very sort of, tongue in cheek in the way that like that the director whose name I'm forgetting I keep meaning to look it up will sort of intentionally like repeat imagery you know mm-hmm. um, like there's a you know you'll see for for instance you see uh, the the father's face like distorted by the glass of like a frosted glass window and then okay. at the roadblock you see in a very similar frame you see someone's face while they're inside a car and it's raining and their face is similarly distorted or there's like a um, there's a part at the base where they shoot off a, like an emergency flare and then later in the movie there's a birthday cake that has instead of candles one of those like sparkler things in it and it's very intentionally like meant to sort of like these things uh, the, these, these images sort of show up mm-hmm. again from time to time. And, and, uh, it's, 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 I think it's knowing it's sort of supposed to make you like, uh, think, Oh, that's, that's clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also draws lines in a sort of, uh, uh, what's like metaphysical way between this, the, the family who I think are in, uh, Tel Aviv. I can't remember. They're in, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, one of the major yeah. like cities, I guess. Um, and, and the, um, the son who's stationed somewhere else, you know, right. and like at a different, so it's a different part of the world in different time, but you're 
getting these connections across time and space with these visual, uh, these motifs that keep, that keep showing up. Um, and then, you know, some of them will repeat within, like there's a thing where the, um, the barracks that the, they're stationed in is essentially like an old shipping container mm. and it's raining a lot where they are. And they're realizing that one side of the shipping container is like sinking. And so oh every night before they go to bed, they roll a can of like potted meat across the floor to see how long it takes <laughs> to let go. Like to make sure like, yep, we're sinking. It took seven seconds instead of eight seconds to get across this time. And so it's kind of a funny thing. And then there's another part later um, that I won't, spoil it would be a major spoiler it's one of the major events of the movie but where there's a another can that sort of rolls across the road and mm. it, it means you know it's an entirely different so you've you know you've been trained to sort of laugh at this can rolling and then you see another can rolling and it's like the scariest slash saddest thing that mm. could happen um and i think all of this that i'm saying is here's where i'll get to the end I already used the word clever and a lot of the movie feels very clever and, but in a way that I was okay with because it never, I guess, um, it never like hung a lantern on its own cleverness. Right. And then in the, in the last couple of shots, it crosses a line where it's like, it's almost like this is what someone's like, uh, you know, uh, uh, one act you wrote in high school, like, you know, you think you're being especially clever with this ending here, boy, oh but boy. it's so obvious. It's, you know, that, uh, it, it did bum me out the way the movie ends bummed me out. Not because it's a bummer ending ending, which it is. Um, but because it sort of like, uh, called it, it called too much attention to what it had been, been doing the whole time. And I thought the movie was, a little, you know, wiser than that, okay. but it didn't ruin the movie. I, th- I still think it's a terrific movie and definitely something that people, uh, should check out. Um, God, I have so much to talk about before we get to you. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, Coco, have you seen Coco? No, yeah. I haven't. Okay. So Coco is, I, we talked about it a little bit actually on the last regular episode, I think. Okay. Um, um, but, uh, or the last regular episode you and I did, thanks to Beverly Gray. Indeed, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, Coco is very good, very fun, um, and, and full of adventure, but it also, I think, is... It's not top-tier Pixar the way that I felt Inside Out was. I know you obviously... Right, right. Um, uh, you didn't like Inside Out as much as I did, which I still think about a lot to this day, because the things that bothered you about inside out bothered me too, but not enough to like just to, uh, to different degrees. You know I what do, I mean? It's as tends to happen. Uh, thankfully I'm glad that I'm, I'm able to let this happen. Um, the stuff that bothers me has faded. It's, I know it's there, but the stuff that works for me has really grown. So I think, I think on a number of levels I would consider inside out to be top tier, uh, Pixar. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> next up oh yeah so yeah uh, coco is uh, a lot of fun it does kind of have a feel of um you can see the screenplay at work where you can see like you know so much of the the story is like we have to get to this place to get this thing mm-hmm. in order to this thing to get back to this place which i think you know i have no problem with that as a you know um as an engine you know to move yeah. the story along but I think a, a number of the obstacles that come up along the way kind of feel like 
this is where the screenplay required in order to get us to 100 pages or whatever. Right. We needed to throw an obstacle in here or else the movie would be over too soon. Sure. Uh, and so sometimes I think the movie t- spends a little too much time on the on, you know, uh, futzing with the plot mechanics to keep itself going. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess the days of Disney movies being 70 minutes are over, <laughs> you know, like it's kind of a bummer. Actually. I know. Like how long is D- Dumbo's like 65, 70 minutes, I swear. Something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, none of those, none of those are particularly long. Yeah. So why? I, like, what would be so wrong with making a, yeah. a Pixar movie that was 70, 75 minutes? Pinocchio is, is just as po- powerful as it ever was. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. All right. Do you think it's, do you think it is a thing, whether people acknowledge it or not? Do you think it's, animators or whatever it is who feel as though they need to that like a longer movie somehow legitimizes animation i don't think it's the animators i think it's probably either disney or pixar or something themselves putting a like uh um, probably a minimum and a maximum time on these like it needed to be it can't be too long because it's got to be you know, a for families and B yeah. animation takes long, a long yeah. time. But I think there is this feeling like we need these movies to, you know, uh, it's like the, uh, the DreamWorks blue sky stuff. That's the 90 minute stuff. We're Pixar. And yeah, Disney. Yeah. Our stuff is in the triple digits. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Next up, I saw, like, this is a perfect example of a celebrity sighting that I didn't even think to mention because I went to the premiere of a movie called Permanent okay. uh, that Rain Wilson is, well, Rain Wilson is in and Rain Wilson was there. Didn't even occur to me. Well, that makes because sense. Because obviously yeah. he was supposed to be there. Um, and this movie, it's, uh, I, it, do you ever feel bad saying that a movie's bad? Because, like, I really believe in the people who made it. I believe they wanted to make uh, a good movie. I think there's a lot of good stuff at work in right. it, but it's just all over the place. It's a comedy. Um, the name permanent comes from the, uh, the main character is rain Wilson's daughter, rain Wilson and Patricia Arquette's daughter. So if you ever want to see rain Wilson and Patricia Arquette as a married couple, uh, <laughs> this is the place it's to on do. my bucket list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, their daughter, uh, they moved to a new town. She's in a new school. It takes place in the, I guess late 1980s, early 1990s. I'm trying to remember exactly when, um, no, it's the, it's the eighties because Reagan, I think is still president at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because Rain Wilson's backstory, his character was a, a flight attendant on air force one. Mm. And so he has all these stories going back to, from like Nixon to Ford to Carter to Reagan. Um, uh, anyway, um, Anyway, the daughter uh, wants to, you know, she's afraid she's not going to look cool at her new school, so she gets a perm. It's a bad perm, and so she's stuck with this bad perm, and that's sort of like, the movie kind of revolves around that. But really, it's this, like, uh, you know, it's this kind of off-kilter, like, family, like, domestic comedy Mm -hmm. that has, I think, some really great moments in it, but also it needs a machete taken to it because it's too meandering. It's too long. And also, unfortunately, so much of the cast is terrible. Oh, wow. It was clearly made on a very low budget. Yeah. And, uh, outside of your main like names, um, which are Patricia Arquette and Rain, Patricia Arquette and Rain Wilson pretty much. And there's, I think a couple of their, um, recognizable names that pop up here and there. Um, uh, it's it, it 
it, it, it just feels like it took forever, you know, to, to watch. Yeah. Um, and the, the good parts were, uh, few and far between, but when there were good parts, like there's a lot of great little, like some of the arguments that Rain Wilson and Patricia Arquette have together are like the good argument scenes that are also really funny. Yeah. Um, uh, and then also there's just some like goofy, funny stuff. Like there's a part there are like group, group couple counseling. So mm-hmm. they're like a counseling with other couples, you know, <laughs> I guess I didn't need to qu- right. clarify yeah, what that it. meant. Um, and the guy who runs the thing is kind of this like, uh, aging hippie type. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, um, really getting into it with one another, like finally opening up about some stuff to one another. And he is just like casually eating a celery stock. <laughs> like there's funny stuff like that yeah. in the movie. And I feel like this, uh, director Colette Burson, uh, probably has something good in her, but, uh, I think that this, this isn't, isn't quite it. Okay. Uh, all right. So I spent too long on that. Um, I'll spend no time at all on this one because it's barely even opening anywhere, but just, and it's also not that great. Um, but there's a Brazilian horror movie, uh, out called the trace we leave behind. Mm. Um, uh, which I think is, it's not, it's notable because it's a horror movie that is also sort of about like, it's sort of a political movie about like the, um, uh, the, the, the underfunded like government, health care in Brazil. The okay. whole thing takes place at a hospital that's being shut down, um, by the government and they, you know, they have to move all the patients to other hospitals. And then one of them sort of one patient goes missing and is maybe haunting the, this empty hospital or hmm. whatever. Um, and it's about the idea of them like losing, you know, um, losing funding and also, but losing funding possibly due to corruption. Hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't want to get, get into where it goes in case anyone does get a chance to, to see it. But as a horror movie, it's, it's pretty by the numbers yeah. in terms of like occasionally like a thing will jump out. There's yeah. one really cool sequence where they're at like a, they're on a floor of the hospital that's been long closed and it has, the way that construction sites only would in movies, not really like no. every few, like five to six feet, like a couple of yards, I guess down the hallway, there's just like a tarp. Yeah. Hanging, yeah. Oh. Which there wouldn't be, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like, Oh, I'm at Halloween horror nights all yeah. of a sudden. But the guy keeps thinking he's seeing the missing girl mm-hmm. on the other side of the next tarp mm-hmm. like seeing her like shadowy silhouette. But every time he like pulls it aside, she's behind the next one. Oh. Keeps, that's a really cool sequence. That's nice. Um, that I, that I liked. Um, but, uh, yeah, the trace we leave behind. Okay. I think I have one more and then I can finally turn it over to you. Okay. Um, the other one is a movie that I reviewed for the website. I took this screening last minute cause I'd kind of heard of the movie. I was a little bit interested in it. Uh, it's getting no press, but it's actually a, a, a pretty fun and interesting movie. It's called the pirates of Somalia. Mm. Uh, and, um, uh, Evan Peters plays, uh, a real life character, um, whose name I'm forgetting. He's a Canadian, um, uh, Jay Bahadur is his name. Uh, and he, uh, as the movie tells it, he sort of wanted to be a journalist, was trying to get into like grad school to study journalism. He r- runs into at a doctor's office, runs into uh, a reporter for the Toronto Globe and Mail. I think that he idolizes played mm-hmm. by Al Pacino in this uh-huh. movie, uh, who sort of gives him a speech 
when she says like fuck Harvard, like uh, go just like do something. And uh, I guess Jay Bahadur's character had already had an interest in in Somalia, mm. and so he just on a whim like gets together a few bucks sends an email to the son of the president of Somalia and just goes to Somalia, uh, and reports on the pirates, you know, like, like in like the captain Phillips type yeah, pirates. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, spoiler alert ends up having a career to this day based on being one of the foremost experts on Somalia in general in the West, in, in, in like the, the U S and Canada. Hmm. Um, uh, it was like, I think at the end of the movie, he's like working for Canadian intelligence or something like that. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler, but again, it's real life. You can look it up, but really what this movie is, is I feel like I expected a movie like called the pirates of Somalia to be kind of like a dry, very sober right. type of like true life story. This is a movie is funny. He's kind of a, uh, raconteur is yeah. kind of a Evan Peters isn't in dry stuff. Like he's, yeah. he's a very charismatic and interesting actor. Yeah. Probably has to do with him being born in St. Louis. Um, that would be my guess. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so a lot of it is very funny. Uh, but also it's a movie that went out of its way to cast actual Somalis, most, mostly yeah. refugees, people who aren't living there anymore. Um, uh, and to have them all be, uh, you know, major characters. Speaking mm-hmm. of Captain Phillips, Barkhad Abdi plays his, um, he doesn't play a pirate this time around. He plays Jay Bahadur's, I guess, like you call him like a fixer slash translator. Like oh, okay. He's just the one who sets up interviews with yeah. government officials and also with pirates and also is translating. Um, and then you've got, and, uh, most of the other Somali cast are actual Somalis. So I'd actually there's a thing in the credits next to each Somali actor's name. It says refugees since whatever year they, hmm. uh, they, they left. Um, um, and, uh, the, yeah, the, the movie really, I think has this, it's, it's funny. And Jay Bahadur often is the butt of the joke. Um, uh, and there's also a running joke about how, people keep assuming he's American and he says I'm Canadian and they don't see a difference. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares that he's Canadian. Um, uh, because like the actual, uh, Marisk, Alabama thing, the captain Phillips thing happens while he's there. And he, he's like, watch out. Like the Americans killed three pirates. The pirates are looking to kill Americans. Hmm. And he's like, I'm Canadian and no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's like funny, darkly funny, but also like really humanistic and really like I'm focusing on Evan Peters, but like there's so many Somali characters and it really is interesting, interested in them and has one of them in particular who plays the, one of the wives of a pirate, like Lord, I guess, um, is a, kind of a cinephile. Um, and they talk about movies and she more than once talks about how much she hates Black Hawk Down <laughs> because, because of, uh, the fact they didn't cast real Somalis and, and, uh, the Somali characters aren't even characters at all in the movie. Uh, Does that seem a little self-congratulatory of the film? Uh, yes, but okay. it didn't bother me, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely. I had yeah. that thought. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this one, uh, this one surprised me, uh, and I would definitely recommend people, uh, check it out if they get the chance. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're up. All right. So here we go. This is going to be potentially controversial, David. Oh, I can't wait. I saw a movie that I know you like. Okay. And, and I like parts of it. Okay. It the cr- listeners love when we disagree. It, I know. 
It is Craig Gillespie's I, Tanya. Oh, I more than liked it. I here's the it. thing, David. You loved the big short. Yeah. I did not care for it. Yeah. You love I, Tanya. Uh-huh. I didn't care for it. And I'd say for exactly the same reason. In fact, I, part of me feels like I, Tanya would not be made the way it, it has been made, if not for the big short. I feel like um, they... I'm, but I'm more inclined to forgive the big short for taking the tone that it does. I, Tanya, great performances all around. It really is a shame that Sebastian, Sebastian Stan isn't getting more of a supporting actor push. I think he mm-hmm. does a great job. Um, and... Well, what about Jenny, the, the, the he's so funny he's and uh, it's I astonishing his name yeah it's like a three name thing i think yeah uh, or maybe that's the actor i don't recall but yeah oh he's uh, astonishing um and i you got to appreciate that guy's commitment because he has to know like he's gonna look like if anybody sees him ever having seen i Tanya, they're like yeah. hey there uh, obvious moron um <laughs> But yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I love to. Uh, what is it? Maybe it's a Chinese restaurant at the stroke of midnight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Paul Walter Hauser's. Yes. Uh, so, in Allison Janney is great, and of course Margot Robbie is great. Like the, I cannot fault the actors for any of this. Um, I think ultimately it's just. I, I guess. It, even in, even the title itself, everything about it just seems <sighs> condescending. And like on one hand, I love that the film like takes to task the idea of people who just like, you're not really our type, like you're lower class. You have mm-hmm. to make your own outfits. You pick music. We don't like, like it does that. And I think it does it very well. And it makes you be like, Hey assholes, like, she's great. Yeah. So just let her be great. Um, and I think those scenes work really well, but then I think the film itself also wants to laugh at the low class part of her. Hmm. I didn't like, see that. I didn't feel that way. Yeah. I, I got a, like a bunch. Um, and it's not a thing I usually am that attuned to, but I just had this, like the idea of calling it like I time, like it's just everything about thing about it, about it is about it is just at the same time. It's look at these morons and don't get me wrong. That guy, <laughs> you know what? Have it be a drama, but he is the comic relief, yeah. but a tra- but tragic. I mean, the scene where she is, is sentenced is marvelous, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and I do like that. I like that it dips back in, but maybe part of me just feels like the nature of this story is so bizarre that maybe you can't make it as a pure straightforward drama. And maybe yeah. I'd be less interested if it was a straightforward drama. I would so, agree with that. so I think I, I think I admire his willingness to, to do that, to try to capture uh, the tone, a very, uh, kind of trying to capture the tabloid nature of the time. The idea that these characters were all, uh, uh, jokes, just the butt of jokes, like nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's trying to capture that and do something different. So I think I appreciate that. Not unlike, uh, the informant, which I think you, you I never, never actually saw. saw. Yeah. Oh, I think you'd like it a lot, but that at least because the character himself is such such an obvious and I mean ambitious liar Uh and that he is constantly like 
you know, kind of rising him, you know, bringing himself up and making himself look a certain way. Not unlike the, the character who, you know, says like he worked, he's like a federal agent or he was undercover, whatever it is, anti-terror. That's it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm training counterterrorism yeah. and espionage. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're not <laughs> just, um, so like, I think that's fine, but I, I just, and because they, because it has that ambition, I can't dismiss it. But I also feel like Craig Gillespie thinks he's better than these characters. Hmm. And maybe he is, you know, they're not Uh, great people, (laughs) you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that. I I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I mean, those, the, the interviews, um, the, you know, the in character interviews, the work is the sort of bookends or whatever framework are based on actual interviews that he did with, with these, with most of these, these people, not with, um, I don't think with, uh, obviously not with Sean Eckhart because he died. Right. And right. not with, um, Tanya Harding's mom because yeah. she didn't want to, but I think with Tanya Harding and with Jeff Galuli, he interviewed yeah. them. I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I think that he has a lot of compassion for them. And that's kind of what, when I heard they were making this movie, you know, a year and change ago, this is the movie. I didn't think we would get the movie that I wanted. Yeah. This is the movie that I wanted, that it's funny, but it's also incredibly empathetic. I thought, um, but it also doesn't entirely let her off the hook because, because yeah. of the framework of, we never know who's telling the truth. Right. The version of the story we end up getting, I think the movie is very clearly saying, we don't yeah. even know if this is the real story. And I feel like there, there could be a certain swirling nature to that. The idea almost in a Rashomon kind of way. Um, but it may be even more abstract. I think I would actually love that. Um, but something I've been thinking more about, I think honestly it was probably hell or high water that got me thinking about it. But even that is a certain type of dissection of class. Um, this is the type of, you know, when I lived in Southern Missouri, but honestly it could be in Denver, it could be in Los Angeles. There's a certain type of lower class or working class person that like, well, they still live, they still have a house. They still have a car. You wouldn't think of them as like lower class. Um, but it also is like perhaps they were raised, you know, it might be a mentality, but also just a lack of access to what everybody else has. And the phrase, the, the idea that the phrase white trash mm. is seen as funny and people will still say it and be like, ah, they're just white trash. Like that bothers me tremendously. And I feel like this could have been an opportunity to dissect that in a way that isn't also laughing at it. But it's tough because it is a funny story. It's like, I'm really torn on it. And I think the actors, I don't think the actors are, I don't think they're winking at all. I think that guy commits to a character who's yeah. just ridiculous. But yeah, no, um, I, I, but I think it's okay to laugh a little bit. At, yeah. I, I think. And I think Craig Gillespie walks a very thin line that I can't believe he pulled off in which I wrote about this specifically in my, in my review that he'll have funny scenes where the punchline will be what I consider what I call an anti punchline because mm-hmm. it'll be an actual punch. punch yeah. There'll be actual domestic violence at the end of a funny scene. Yeah. And he still makes the domestic violence serious. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's incredibly, it seems like an incredibly yeah. difficult thing to have pulled off and he, and he did it, I think. 
and you know, I'm not a big fan of Lars and the Real Girl for much the same I way. I feel like he makes. I think Paul, what's his name? Paul Schneider is great in everything. I'm a big fan of him. Um, but uh, I think that's a film that, in the art direction and costume design. I feel like Craig Gillespie just makes these characters out to be a bunch of dopes that I think you are kind of, that that you're sort of on board with, but almost in spite of them. Um, I don't know. Maybe I just don't respond to the way he, he makes movies. All right. Should we move on? Yes. Uh, I'm very eager to talk about, or um, especially eager for you to have seen this movie, which I don't think you have, have yet. Uh, It's Alexander Payne's downsizing. I have not seen it yet. So, um, by, the, by accounts of people I trust, it's not that good. Here, here, and no, and they're right. Um, but I do feel like there's a tendency, I think, among certain people in the sort of Twitter age, I mm-hmm. guess, to like, if a movie is mostly bad, well, let's just round it up to all bad and, right. you know, dunk on it to mm-hmm. use, uh, to use internet speak. Um, right. and it's, and it's compounded here in the fact that downsizing is, um, a movie that is, uh, again, an in internet speak is problematic specifically in a way that it is trying not to be. It's trying to say something the opposite. And then it seems like it's an illustration of, um, like sort of, um, uh, ignorant or narrow sort of like white guy wokeness, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like a, a little bit too pleased with itself for being quote unquote woke. Sure. And then is blind to the many, many ways in which it isn't. Right. And I think that that is giving people entree to, to, to trash the movie. Plus the fact that Matt Damon, who stars in it keeps being that guy in real life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I've, I've read one or two, th- one or two things. Of, yeah. But he like, he, well, he's become kind of a meme now where, yeah. because he said we should talk about men who aren't sexual harassers. So now there's a meme where it's like, I think the first one I saw was like, uh, Oh, I burned my finger on the stove. Matt Damon crashes to the wall. We should talk. We should talk about <laughs> stoves that aren't burning fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's become like, so yeah, he, he seems like, I mean, yeah, that said, maybe this isn't the way to say it, but I do like the idea. It's like, rather than focus on what we shouldn't do, let's also talk about what we should I understand that in a certain way, but maybe not this way. First, you need to yes. recognize the people that have done a bad thing. Yes, especially, I mean, it gets even more difficult with him because he's close friends with Casey Affleck, who is yeah. one of the you know major figures that has been uh, accused by multiple women of some uh, pretty creepy behavior. So I think, like, yes, I would say the movie is at least 60 to 65% bad mm-hmm. um, and is bad in a way that it is timely enough that people are trashing it. But I do think it's the most interesting movie Alexander Payne has made since about Schmidt, maybe. Hmm. Um, uh, and I don't want to like, I almost, I, I want this criticism so that, you know, because I think it's the, the, the criticisms that are out there are important, but I also don't want to discourage Alexander Payne from making, uh, ambitious movies like this. Yeah. Um, but so the main problem is with the movie is that it's so much the lesson of, or, or the, or the lesson, I guess the, the, the theme that is trying to get across the, the parable, I guess, is that Matt Damon is a decent, like not rich white straight male mm. who does this thing 
downsizing, shrinks himself. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming everyone knows the premise of the movie. Yeah. Um, but what I think this is in the trailer as well, but so much of the selling of it is like, this is good for the environment. This is right. a good thing to do. And so what you get is a bunch of these. And also when you get, when you join one of these downsized communities, you're worth your, you know, the m- amount of money you have, you know, multiplies by, uh, 80 something like 80 times or whatever. Yeah. So people are just essentially retiring early to go live in these tiny communities where they suddenly are millionaires yeah. or the equivalent of millionaires. Um, and they're all very proud of themselves for having done something good for the environment. But really what they're doing is they're, they've put themselves in a position where they can ignore the rest of the world yeah. and live off of their own, uh, you know, just live lives of le- lives of leisure while congratulating one another for yeah. <laughs> having done something so uh, so great. And I think that's a great uh, metaphor. But then the movie itself essentially does that, yeah, um, because it uh, ends up becoming a kind of white savior type movie. Because part mm. of the story is that he meets he finds out, Oh, it's not just people like us who are, yeah. you know, cashing in and retiring early. Like there are poor people who are downsizing to work these jobs because that's what's available to them. And so there yeah. are poor parts of these downsized cities and Hong Chow plays, um, you know, Hong Chow from, uh, inherent vice. The, uh, she worked at the, like, uh, brothel. Uh, he had the thick accent. She talked about the, what's it called? Like the pussy eater special or something like oh, that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I was a little on the fence and yeah. Okay. Um, I also remember her first from Treme, um, hmm. uh, um, which she was on uh, for the last couple seasons. Anyway, um, she's terrific. She's the best part of the movie. Um, so much so that I think my reaction, and I think a lot of the reactions I've been reading are like, why is this movie even about Matt Damon? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's so fascinating. She's such a great performance. And why are we putting her in this box where the, she's just there to teach Matt Damon's character a lesson yeah. that he gets to feel good about at the end? It's, 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 it's my, it's my Edward Zwick thing where on one hand I feel like the supporting character of color usually, or just non-white, like they're infinitely more interesting than the white per than the white lead. And part of me just thinks like, yes, okay, but the audience is, is probably going to be white. And so maybe this is meant to get them in so that they wind up seeing a perspective that maybe they wouldn't see it otherwise. I don't necessarily like that. I feel like it doesn't give the audience quite enough credit, but I, I see, I f- could see it being that. And, uh, but also I think there's a, there, there's been enough of a cultural shift from the eighties and nineties to now yeah. where maybe the Edwards Zwick model is, seems regressive as opposed to like the idea that we need this helping hand or whatever. Yeah. I think we've gotten to a point where it's like, well, no, why don't we just center stories of, of of these people who aren't yeah. the the status quo, yeah. Um, it's 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 almost like ironically perfect how much downsizing becomes the exact thing it is trying to like lampoon, hmm. um, which is unfortunate because I think there's a lot of great performances in it. Um, there's uh, a lot of fun, obviously, with the premise and the and and different you know. Uh, jokes uh and just using camera angles and just the joke of hey there's a big thing you know yeah. um uh i i liked uh i liked so much of it that i 
I don't, like I said at the top, I don't want to discourage Alexander Payne from making, you know, weird movies (laughs) like this, but, uh, Hong Chao is really incredible in the movie. Okay. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, as far as awards and stuff, she is being singled out for supporting actress here and yeah. there, like critics awards. And, and it's kind of neat that like a film that is not really well liked that they still can say like, yeah, but that's great. Yeah. So let's focus on that. I'm um, not sure if I also mentioned the movie's two hours and 15 minutes long, ugh. which I mean, again, being blind to your own, the movie's called downsizing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it definitely could have used, used a trim. It really like, spins its wheels for the first hour and throws in like weird cameos. Like, have you watched the trailer? Yes. Like, okay. So Margot Martindale's in the trailer. No, I that, don't think I, re- I don't think I realized oh, that. Okay. That's the entirety of her part in the movie is oh, that wow. part that's in the trailer. And there's, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of weird, weird things like that. Um, uh, and it just seems like it, yeah, I, I would much, I much preferred it once Hong Chao showed up and it sort of focused on something, even though if, even if it was doing it pretty clumsily, uh, yeah, it, that's, this is going to be the, I think this is already a battleship retention thing, but this is something I really want to become our rallying cry is, uh, long movies can be shorter. <laughs> Most movies don't need to be as long as they are. Yeah. Oh, I'll definitely say that when we get to, I think oh. the last film that I'll be talking okay. about. Another thing that I'm sort of starting to get on board, board on, and I don't think this is as bothersome, but there's a lot of movies that are shot in scope that don't need to be. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I feel like, like progressively since, since the night, like even before that you had like super 35 and then once you got into like digital and stuff and now it's like, it's just as easy because you don't have to get anamorphic lenses right. and, and everything. It's just as easy to shoot a movie in scope as it is in one eight five or one six, six. And that's why we're getting like things in all kinds of, you yeah. know, we're getting a lot, a lot more one six, six movies and stuff because you just shoot the same camera. You just like frame it for whatever. And so I feel like a lot, a lot of movies, and this has been, like I said, this has been going on for a long time, but uh, a lot of movies are shooting scope maybe to just lend themselves a sort of like cinematic quality. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if you need to, you know? Yeah, I think it could be that. I, You know, if the director thinks that that is the best way to make his or her film, then so be it. But at the same time, like, doesn't mean I have to like it. And yeah. doesn't mean I have yeah. to agree that it's necessary. Yeah. But I was thinking about that because of a movie we'll talk about later. Um that I saw, which is hostels, which is a movie that is in scope and absolutely uses every sure. inch of it. It's a sure. beautiful movie. Um, we'll talk about it more though. Okay. So next for me is Kenneth Brown's murder on the Orient express, Oh, cool. which I would say is a really good entry point into who done, uh, who who's done it. Um, here's why, but you know what? I think I might th- think that because of what happened when I was leaving the theater. Because mm-hmm. I remember thinking, like, all right, that was fine. Some really nice costumes and some good performances here and there. And and as I was leaving, uh, there was a family uh, that was walking out. They had all gone to see it. And this 11-year-old boy was talking to his dad and was asking, like, was asking him questions about the story, but not in a confused way, but, like, in an enthusiastic mm. way. And I remember just being like, good for him. Like, and I just thought like maybe the kid's already into murder mysteries or maybe he's about to be. And I was very excited for him. Yeah. Um, and this definitely feels like that. It feels like this very lavish thing that, uh, that is 
one could say it's Agatha Christie light. Um, I think that they make some decisions that I don't love. One is that, uh, so the, you know, the train is stuck in a snowbank, mm-hmm. and the characters will regularly get off the train and just kind of be outside while the train is being dug out. And part of me is like, no, stay on the train. This is supposed to be, you're trapped with a potential murderer and none of you can go anywhere. And it's very, uh, claustrophobic. Like that's kind of the point of it being on a train or a boat or something like that is that you can't go anywhere. Um, so stuff like that. And, and, and I do think Kenneth Brown is a, a really, interesting job as uh poirot and they have set up a very obvious i I don't know if you'd call it a sequel when it's just a different you know case uh but there's another one called death on the nile which is probably one of the more famous uh books and they've set that up as being the next one i think this one did well enough that they're going to make it oh good um and i enjoyed it but it's it's pretty pretty slight in a lot of ways and um it's tough because Sidney Lumet's version is so good and they really get, and in that one, they really give every character their due. Um, and in this one, they clearly focus on some and not on others. And I think they all, the whole point of any whodunit, whether you're reading it or, or watching it, um, the point is that everyone's a suspect, which means you need to know as much about everyone as you can. But like when it's, when it's like, Oh, this guy has only had like five lines. It's probably not going to be him because, or it will be. And I'm going to be very disappointed. Um, so, uh, but I liked it and I, I'm glad I saw it in the theater. It is a very nice movie to look at as Kenneth Branagh films tend to be. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it didn't get great reviews, and I think it's probably better than those. But it's it's no Sydney Lumet film. All right. Um, speaking of having questions after a movie, okay. I saw a movie that I fi- I finally saw Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Okay, I loved it, Tyler. It's pretty great. Um, that said, there are a couple of things. Look, I'm not I don't get hung up on plot when, especially in a movie that is clearly that's clearly secondary. Yes, uh, there are a couple of things that I don't understand. Uh, at all how they happened, but maybe I just need to watch it again. But I didn't care. Okay. The movie's so so great. It's uh, it, it's it's beautiful. The music is intense. Yeah. Um, and uh, the performances are wonderful. I was just actually thinking today about, and I forgot her name, but the woman who plays like the main replicant villain, Love. Yeah. She's terrific. Yeah. Um. Uh. And um. There's not really a, any. I, I, all the performances are are fantastic. Um, I I love. I don't remember the name of the character or the actress, unfortunately. But like Ryan Gosling's like digital girlfriend. I yeah, thought she was. I thought she was great. Yeah, um, yeah, that is. Yeah, she is fantastic. And I do think I was. The, yeah, the one thing that I was kind of worried about with the movie is like, are we supposed to actually care about this relationship, or are we just supposed to think he's sad? Yeah. And I feel like when he encounters the advertising version of her, that like it looks and talks just like her. Yeah. I think that's when I realized like, okay, the movie's on board with me. This is supposed to be sad. The fact that his closest relationship is with something that isn't real. Um, but I do come to appreciate her, especially with that scene that is not unlike the scene in her, but kind of ups the ante a little bit where there's sort of a a surrogate body there. Um, well, with Mackenzie Davis, that's, like marvelous. You could take that scene out of the movie and just as a piece of like experimental filmmaking is just beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, and then I also felt because I rewatched, uh, I didn't, I didn't think I mentioned it on, I didn't bother putting it on here. Um, because I guess I'm talking about it now, but I, I also rewatched Blade Runner yeah. or I shouldn't even say rewatch because I'd never actually watched the final cut before. Oh, okay. Uh, so I watched the final cut for the first time, which is very minutely different from the director's cut. Um, yeah, I think, um, the only thing I like, I looked up the differences after yeah. the only thing that stood out to me at the time watching it that was clearly different was, um, that, they made it so that Roy body Roy Batty clearly says father when he says, I want yeah. more life. Cause that always sounded like fucker. I want more life fucker. Yeah. And I think Ridley Scott went in and did it. Like he very clearly says, I want more life father. No. Um, that's the only thing that stood out to me. Well, and the, the interview, uh, between Brian was named Brian James. Uh, Leon is, I think the name of the replicant and then the, the guy interviewing him at the very beginning. beginning. Um, I think in the, in the director's cut, which is the one I'm most familiar with, uh, the interviewer, just that blade runner gets killed by Leon. And whereas I think in the final cut, we actually see that he is not dead, that he is hospitalized and Deckard talks to him. So I think that's, I could talk to him. I think so. I know there's a reference to him being, uh, being in the hospital. I think, I, I think he talks to him cause I remember being like, Oh, this is a big deal. Like this character is alive and conscious. Um, Oh, I love that Edward James almost spo- spoilers. I love that Edward James almost showed up in 2049 for yeah. one scene. That was great. Um, anyway, what I was going to say is I feel like Blade Runner original recipe is a very, is a real downer of a movie. Like I think it's beautiful, but I also mm-hmm. think it's a movie that's very much about death. It's yeah. about the replicants coming to terms with, you know, the fact that they're going to die, which is something that is actually very human. You have to like realize, uh, and Blade Runner 2049 for as much death and blood and dark stuff is in it. I think it's actually a very hopeful movie in saying like, it's looking at how much worse things have gotten in terms of the environment and stuff in the 30 years, uh, which I think probably speaks more to a modern day audience than it would have in 1982 with, uh, with climate change and everything. Uh, and finding hope and finding something in like, even if we are dying, there's, there's hope in the human race or the replicant race, whatever you want to say, um, carrying on. And so, um, yeah, I, I won't go into too many spoilers, but like, both movies have replicant characters dying at the end. Yeah. The first one it's raining. And as he dies, he looks down, he looks down in 2049. When the replicant dies, he lays back and looks up at the sky as he's dying. And I think that's where it clicked for me, how these movies complement each other. Um, and I, I I didn't know because I remained largely spoiler free of the, of the story. Um, except for skimming your review yep. for spoilers. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> are there any spoilers? Uh, there are some, cause I don't remember we got an email, uh, from the publicist, just like a, just oh, like yeah, a, yeah. a, a mass email saying like to anyone who attended the screening, um, trying to reveal spoilers. And I don't think you'd gotten the email until after you'd written the right. review. Uh, and you weren't too bad. There were definitely reviews out there that spoiled more than, than yeah. you did. Um, I don't think I realized anyway, going in, I didn't, I don't realize I'm really glad I rewatched Blade Runner. Cause I, did, I didn't know going in how important the, the, uh, the instance, the, the events of Blade Runner would be to Blade Runner. Yeah. It's not just a new story set in this world. It's very much a, like, yeah. uh, a continuation. Anyway, I went on way too long about Blade Runner 2049. Okay. 
So, uh, so now we're getting into the section where my brother-in-law was in town. So there's a bunch of rewatches. Okay. Also, I was sick for a while. Oh. So, um, we watched, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's spirited away, which I've seen several times at this point. Uh, an animated film that is a solid two hours and it uses every single one of those yeah. minutes because no it is constantly introducing new things and then acting like it's fine along <laughs> very Alice in Wonderland in that way, yeah. but maybe even more so. Um, because Alice in Wonderland, like it would, it would introduce this thing and be like, isn't that fucking crazy? And this one is like, isn't that great? Isn't that inspirational? It's like, ah, I guess so. Uh, but I love it. It's just, there's such inspiration there and it's just so lovingly animated and the characters, um, even the, the, the villains, uh, you have such affection for. There is just something about Miyazaki and I've seen, you know, criminally few of his films. Um, but, uh, I think that's the second week in a row I've used the term criminally few. Sorry, everybody. Um, it's okay. And so, uh, but there's just there's just an odd vibe. There's a childlike wonder, but I think a very adult maturity. And Spirited Away is a film that that really rewards multiple viewings, if for no other reason than just it's it's so enjoyable and oddly relaxing to be brought back into this world mm. that is at times incredibly stressful. But yeah, somehow I I just I feel like I'm in good hands the whole time. Yeah, when you said relaxing, I was like. Hmm. It's a really stressful movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. As you know, I mean, Alice in Wonderland is obviously like the the closest thing, but um, yeah, in both cases, just, you know, everybody knows what is expected of them and of everyone else. And you don't know. And that can be very, it's like starting a new job, but uh, horrendous. Um, You know, your parents have turned into pigs and stuff. Um, But yeah, it's uh, listeners. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, It is always worth a rewatch. Um, All right. So also movies from earlier in 2017, I caught up on. I finally saw it. Okay. I saw Andre Muschietti's it. Okay. Um, You're saying it with an exclamation point. It doesn't have it. uh, Yeah, (laughs) you're right. But I needed to, I need to distinguish seeing it from seeing it. Fair enough. You know, um, and uh, I had a blast. It's a wonderful, I had a fun time at the movies. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that great overall. I think it's full. It's, it basically works as a series of scary vignettes. Yeah. And every once in a while I had to sort of like tap my feet and look at my watch in the scenes in between. I don't actually yeah. wear a watch and I would not look at my watch in the movie theater right. anyway. Um, uh, I, I think most of the kids are bad actors. Um, really? I, I like, yeah. I liked a good portion. Of uh, them. I like her. The, she's great. She's the best of the yeah. kids. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, most of the time when it got back to the, the, the kids just like talking about the history of dairy and like, or their own families, it's like, this stuff was better in the book. Um, and, uh, it feels like I, you know, I, I tried this, there's a reason I, I often, a lot of film critics, I think and I respect this point of view, feel like they should, if a movie is based on source material, they should familiarize with the source, familiarize themselves with the source material for material first. I don't think I, so. I actually think it's better the other way. Yeah. So you can, and, and this is a case in point, like being a fan of the book and of the, uh, the 1990 miniseries, at least as a kid, um, there were so many parts where I was like, I think this is just in here because Andy Muschietti, like felt it needed to be carried over from the book. Right. You know, um, 
uh, and so I think, uh, so I think a lot of the like thematic stuff that Stephen King brought in terms of, um, uh, the way that, um, parents can fuck up their kids, um, and be awful to their kids in the way that communities can blind themselves to abuse or neglect or, 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 you know, even actively protect it. Yeah. Um, I think that stuff felt kind of perfunctory in the movie. It's, it's more prominent in the trailer than the (laughs) film. It's as far as the movie goes, there's like, I don't know, nine people living in this town and, uh, like seven of them are these kids. Yeah. It's, it really bothered me Yeah, because it does kind of tip its hat to that but doesn't really follow through at all. And I feel like that would have been very thematically and artistically satisfying. Um, but yeah, as a series of scares, it's great. And it also, it does something that I wish more horror movies did at a couple of points. I'll name one point in particular, the, uh, uh, the kid Ben, when yeah. he's, do you remember the scene when he's in the library looking through the book of yeah. photographs from Derry's history? So, Obviously, what he sees in the books is scary, and the scene that follows is scary. Yeah. But did you notice what else was going on? I don't think so. So during every shot... Or maybe I didn't. I didn't realize it, but... Every shot of him looking at the books. See, when we, we first we saw the, the librarian comes up to him and has the whole thing about, like, boys your age. It's summer. Boys shouldn't be reading books, which is a yeah. weird thing for a librarian to say. Yeah. <laughs> like, boys should be outside or whatever. So during every shot of Ben flipping through the books, the librarian is in the back, a couple of tables back not moving hunched slightly forward with a grin on her face and blurry, like out of focus yeah. the entire time, just staring at him out of focus and grinning wow. and not moving. And it's, a, it's like a setup to a scare that never pays off. And I yeah. love that because it just gives you the impression like that this, this creepy shit is just happening all the time in this town. Yeah. Uh, I love that so much. Um, and so I am looking forward to seeing what he does with, with the adults in, yeah. In chapter two, but uh, mostly just looking forward to it because I like being scared by movies. I'm not actually that invested in how the stories and the characters right. pay off, especially since I already know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll be interested to see what he changes. Okay. Anyway, moving on next for me again, this is the section of rewatches, a uh, film that is one of my favorite of all time, Chinatown. Um, pretty great. Can't, add much to that uh except this i've loved this movie for many years and yet in my mind this happens from time to time in my mind i think of it as a film that's actually not remarkably strong on character because there's so much story and so much of it is revealed so much of it is about revealing a story that i feel like i don't actually know jake giddes that much um watching it this time knowing what the story is going to be and knowing what the twists are going to be, it just frees you up to watch, to really pay attention to Nicholson, what he's doing, the way his character carries himself. And you come to realize like he is as knowable as he's going to allow himself to be like, that is a choice that he is making. The fact that you never find out what happened in Chinatown because he doesn't want to say it. Mm -hmm. Um, because he doesn't want to relive it and he doesn't want you to think about him a certain way. I think that's, that's brilliant. And I do think it's a really fascinating performance that is, I don't know, the performance remind and the character reminds me a little bit of like 
T.E. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia. It's like, well, what drives him? I don't really know. He's a little bit enigmatic, and that's as it should be, um, more so than really any other, uh, you know, because it's a throwback to, to detective noir of the uh, 40s. And those characters, you kind of had a pretty good idea of what drove them, even if they it was only revealed later on in the story. But with, with uh, Giddy's, like, as I remember Robert Town said it, uh, and I think they might've mentioned this and like, you know, the kid stays in the picture, but Chinatown is a state of mind more so than an actual movie or more than that's what he meant for it to be. And when you think about that in the context of like Jake Giddies and the fact that his life's just going to continue, he's not even going to jail by the end of that film. He just, he's just going back to his life, having experienced all this. And this is just one more thing that happened in Chinatown Mm -hmm. and well back to business on Monday. Like that's insane. The way that, that his life is working out. And uh, and the idea that it's just everything, it just kind of flows into itself. And I still stick with my, uh, my assertion that I think Noah Cross is the most dynamic villain in film history, despite being in the film very little. Um, but his just, his shadow just looms large. Once he shows up, he's there, even if he's not there. Um, yeah, it really is a, a, a remarkable film in every way. Um, and not unlike spirited away, uh, Every time you watch it, it just it, it will yield more stuff. I should watch it again. Although I was, I've been thinking about it because I'm thinking in general about older films by people like Roman Polanski and Woody Allen yeah. and stuff, and like how I feel about them. But also, like even if uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm contradicting myself here because I'm generally a pretty strict auteurist. But also, yeah. like. Am I, you know, if I were to never watch Chinatown again, it means I'm never going to, like, watch this, you know, Jack Nicholson performance, this Faye Dunaway performance, this John Houston performance, this Robert Town script, this John A. Alonzo cinematography. Yeah. Like, you know, what did they do? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, maybe that's just an excuse I'm making so that I can keep watching Chinatown with a yeah. clean conscience. But, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. All right. Um, not a great movie is a documentary called Chasing Coral. Um, oh, okay, yeah. It's from the same guy who made Chasing Ice a few years ago, which was about the disappearing uh, glaciers, mm-hmm. which I which I thought was was good and and interesting. Chasing coral. Now it turns out coral is melting too. That's how hot these oceans <laughs> no, are getting. Coral is dying oh, okay. uh, because and alarmingly quickly, uh, and it is very upsetting. Um, uh, and the movie definitely gets that across. And there's plenty of beautiful cinematography uh, and you know the shots of, of, of coral uh, from you know underwater photography or also from the sky looking down at it um, but where chasing coral airs is that it for most of its runtime chasing coral is about the making of the movie chasing coral mm-hmm. and I, I was like why am I watching this like DVD special feature shit like I don't need to know about what cameras they used or how like the first batch of time lapse they did didn't turn out like turned out out of focus. Why is that yeah. in the movie? Like I don't need to know about this. Yeah. I don't need to know about. I mean, it is interesting that one of the guys who works uh, he he works for like the camera company is like was all was like weirdly like already a big coral head <laughs> like really into coral all right. and so he ends up becoming in a way almost the main character of the movie. This guy who was just like contracted because the company he works for was like supplying equipment to this and ends up becoming like a, uh, a spokesman and ends up like really emotionally affected by seeing dead coral all over the world. Um, there's interesting stuff going on and it's very pretty to look at, 
but also like I, I'm maybe I'm being a pessimist, but there's so many of these like, like climate change documentaries that are like, they spend, if they're say they're 90 minutes long for 85 minutes, they're hammering how awful things are in the last five minutes. They're like, but there's hope. Yeah. But then like, they don't really show like, yeah. Is there hope? Like maybe I'm being pessimistic, but it, like, it feels like maybe we need to start learning how to live without coral um, yeah. <laughs> because uh, it feels like we're past the point of no return. Sometimes I shouldn't say that in the podcast because I think we should keep hope alive. Um, you know, that's what the star Wars movies are all about and stuff. Sure. Um, and blade runner 2049 weirdly is about that. Yeah. Uh, even, even downsizing uh, is about that. Um, Chinatown. Uh, I might not have understood maybe, the film, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I can't really recommend chasing coral. All right. Next for me is a rewatch, but it's been about 17 years. Okay. Jen was watching it and I, but it was early enough and I came in and watched it and boy, okay. so this movie from the year 2000. Yeah. Is it scary movie? No, is this it crouching is tiger, hidden dragon. No, I think I'd probably like that more now than I did at the time. I probably would too. I didn't like it at the time, but I also generally didn't get, yeah, like I didn't get martial arts movies in general. And I definitely didn't get like the wuxia martial yeah. arts movies where there's like magic and people like, yeah. And like walking on the air and stuff. I did not get that when I was younger. Now that I like that stuff, I would probably like crouching tiger. I think so. Yeah. Um, so what I'll say is this is the film. I saw it in the theater with my dad at the time. And this was the movie that as we were driving home, I was talking about the things I didn't care for. And he said, not in a way that I felt was judgmental at all. It was more just, it's almost like he was saying, th- saying something to himself out loud about me uh-huh. in which he was just like, he's like, so it's different now, isn't it? Like you can't watch movies the way you used to. Like you are assessing at this point now. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I guess so. Um, and what an odd, film for the like this that is what i will always associate with this film which is one more guess okay u571 no i think that one's probably still pretty good Um, i remember having uh having positive associations with this uh with that film um no it is gone in 60 seconds oh boy boy oh boy (laughs) like (laughs) when i came in you know, it's like, hey, there's Delroy Lindo, there's Robert Duvall, of course, uh, good actors all around. Um, Nicholas Cage giving a unsurprisingly committed performance. But man, I forgot just how awful those Jerry Bruckheimer movies were. Like, just everything is just just so focused on being cool what does cool mean uh the characters everything is everything is an affectation i mean they don't see it that way and we're not meant to see it that way but it's as if the characters themselves are saying like okay okay what's like a super cool thing i can do um and whether it be a hat that they're wearing it's like okay let's all listen to a lowrider for a moment to like get ourselves all charged up what that's not the song for that but um (laughs) And just so many, Giovanni Ribisi is doing pretty good work. Um, and I remember a friend of mine, uh, I said like, I, I do not like that movie. He goes, he goes, I just like it for the cars. And I, I believe at the time I said, go to a car show. Yeah. Don't waste my time with these, with, with this. <laughs> um, and it's just, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, you know, 
one of the, I think one of the reasons that I love Robert Duvall so much and I cite him as my favorite actor, he's been in some shit movies and he is able to sell every forgettable line he is given mm-hmm. and actually turn that into some kind of character. And <clears throat> I just really, uh, really appreciate and i think delroy lindo is up there like the two of them in this movie it's like hey look at what this movie could have been and is not um but yeah so that is the movie that uh, got me to got my dad to realize like oh because i think he might have enjoyed it a little bit and i think i might have been quote unquote ruining it for him and i'm his parade kind of yeah Yeah. and i think he realized like oh i'm i'm different than i used to be as this smart ass 18 year old but you know what i stand by my statement not a good movie all right uh okay next up i saw paulo versi's the leisure seeker okay which is a um movie do you know what it's about uh i don't it's a road trip movie starring donald sutherland and helen mirren Hey, all right. Um, I like them. The Leisure Seeker is the name of their RV. They're uh, and obviously they're an older couple. They're mm-hmm. played by Don Sutherland and Helen Mirren, uh, and uh, they're both sort of ailing in different ways. And they decided the last minute uh, um, to take a, or really she decides to take a road trip down from their Massachusetts home to the. Uh, Florida Keys to visit the home of Ernest Hemingway because Donald Sutherland before he retired was a his character was a literature professor and he's a big Hemingway fan something he's always wanted to do okay. it's never been uh, this is much to the consternation of their adult children who want to put them in a home mm-hmm. because they're both sick uh, played by Janelle Maloney okay. uh, and Christian McKay the oh yeah and Christian McKay I, who does an amazing Orson Welles in, well, in Orson Welles by the way uh you know what he doesn't do, except I guess when he's not doing Orson Welles, you know what he doesn't do? A good American accent. A good American accent. It is, I don't understand what he thinks he's supposed to be sounding like, which is not, I feel bad judging because I can't do a great British accent, but it took me out of the movie every time. Like, what is he supposed to, because his whole character is supposed to be like a regular Joe type Mm. who wears like cargo shorts, but he's talking like this way. (laughs) It's weird. He's, He's uh, he's in Florence Foster Jenkins. Did you ever see it? I never did. I wanted to. So he plays a, uh, a theater critic uh, in in that, and I seem to recall he's doing an American accent, but it's a very specific type of yeah like, upper class. Yes, and. Yeah. It's not. It reminds me of like when somebody like Michael Caine, one of the best actors ever, when he does an American accent and winds up being oddly nasal, like what you're talking <laughs> about here, and he's like, oh, I've never. I've known a lot of Americans. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard anybody sound like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, yeah. There's another ba- uh, before I forget. Um, uh, Andrew Buchanan in All the Money in the World, who plays John Paul Getty Jr. Okay. Not the kidnapped one, and not the grandson, right. the one in between. Also, does a bad American accent in that movie. Hmm. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Uh, the Leisure Seeker is no. I tend to like. I think we talked about on the show before. I like pleasant old people movies yeah i really liked um uh what's the black Dana one uh is that i'll see you in my dreams yes. like that that movie is so great um i like that uh i liked just this year what was it um paris can wait the the one with uh with diane lane um sure uh, which is more of a middle-aged movie than an old like right. Diane Lane's not right. an old lady but it's a going in style uh, is i a didn't big see one. going in style looks so terrible um but I generally like this, these movies, and in many in many ways, that's what the Leisure Seeker is. But it also is like um, 
in a way that doesn't entirely work. It's also way darker than you think it's going to mm. be. Um, and I kind of appreciated that it's a movie that is about, because the thing I haven't said yet is that Donald Sutherland's character is not just sick. He has Alzheimer's and he's forgetting things. Um, and that becomes a big part of the, of the movie. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's upsetting. Um, and the movie is often very frank about sort of the, uh, physical um indignities of growing old uh and i respected a lot of the choices it's it made but it does feel like it's all over the place and um at a certain point it becomes weird that it's about like hijinks and shenanigans and also about like (laughs) dying (laughs) um uh it is also like this is something i think we're going to be seeing uh more often in movies probably in 2018 a lot this is a movie that takes place in the fall of 2016. And over the course of their road trip, they encounter both Trump and Clinton rallies. Hmm. And it becomes a, uh, you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a part of the story in a way. There's one part where they actually get swept up in a Clinton, or in a Trump rally in, like, Donald Sutherland, who is this, like, New England liberal professor right. but is now like forgetting who he is, gets kind of swept up and is chanting, hmm. make America great again. And Helen Mirren has to, like, pull them aside and say like these people don't represent the things that you've spent in your life no it's it's weird i think that's the kind of thing we're going to see more often no. uh in, in in movies but uh i can't really recommend it it's not what you expect but it's i can't really recommend. did you see the weekend uh no i didn't i think you'd like it a lot based on what you're talking about like that you know the, uh, this couple an older couple like oh and they're on vacation for a short time but like dark as hell in a lot of ways um okay but uh and a really wonderful performance by jeff goldblum on top of everything else um okay so next up for me is uh a film that i've now seen several times since it came out in 2011 and i will con- i contend that it is just one of the most fun movies you'll ever see which is your next um this oh. was this was one that my uh my brother-in-law was interested in watching and i was like i'm always interested in watching your next <laughs> um but what's neat is that because I've seen the film multiple times and I remember where the scares are that allowed me to uh, covertly record Jen's reactions and they have not changed at all. Okay, so she's since seen the it before. The, yeah, okay. but with me at in the theater, she hasn't seen it since. I have. And so I was like, okay, we're coming up on this. I'm going to go ahead and, and record. And they are every bit of... She, they haven't changed at all. And uh, that was delightful. But... Um, the film is just so it is tonally perfect. It's genuinely frightening. There's a nice whodunit quality to it. Like it just every, uh, every actor is understands their character. Maybe most, especially Joe Swanberg, who still has to me, one of the funniest, line deliveries ever and it's like when you know what i'm well there are two that are pretty great but it's uh it's when like you know the the family is under siege and they're trying to call um they're trying to like call out and this uh one of the brothers felix who clearly is kind of a black sheep like he doesn't dress as well as the others his girlfriend looks like kind of this this goth type girl and he goes he goes well maybe they're jamming it with like one of those uh like one of those signal jammers like I, i've seen those before and then 
Joe Swanberg, who at this point has been skewered with an arrow, but still is like, he goes, Felix, you fucking low life. <laughs> it's so, like, <laughs> it is so hysterical. Um, and it's just a, such a, a, a wonderfully, um, wonderfully written and conceived film. And then it was followed by the guest, which I think is also great. Mm -hmm. Although maybe has some tonal issues from time to time, but your next is a film that I will never get tired of watching. All right. Uh, I watched a very heavy, but very good documentary. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's called one of us. Okay. Uh, it's directed by, um, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady who have made, um, the last thing they made that I saw was the Norman Lear documentary, just another version of you. Um, but they also made, uh, they made their name with Jesus camp, which is like really hmm. like at this point, 10 that years was a while ago. Old. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they also made Detropia, which I didn't see was supposed to be really good about, okay. you know, uh, the, uh, all derelict buildings in Detroit and stuff hmm. like that. But, uh, one of us is about the, um, Hasidic Jewish community in New York city. Specifically, it follows three people who are, who have left that life and mm -hmm. leaving that life means like, it's almost like, it's very similar to someone trying to get out of Scientology. Like yeah. They hound you. They make it very difficult. They separate you from your entire friend and family group. Um, and uh, it's such a close knit community that like the, the main woman of the, the it's two men and one woman all separately. They don't know each other, but who are that it documents, you know, who are getting out of the community or have gotten out of the community. And this one woman, her husband beat her for 12 years and in the eyes of the Hasidic community, the worst thing that happened was that she called the cops, that she went outside of the community to deal with it. I see. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, had she gone within the community, they would have stopped the husband? Mm, no, yeah. not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Um, because the, 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 the marriage or whatever is more important than right. her individual feelings and in its patri patriarchal community. Um, so it's a very sobering and upsetting, uh, documentary. Um, and, but one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it, it illustrates how communities like this, the, the, the Hasidim in New York and Montreal and other places across the world, like they formed and became what they are now as a direct response to the Holocaust. Yeah. And so they became about protecting one another and, that is what led to this thing that's so cloistered as to be a dangerous thing potentially to be against or to be a part of and no. not fit in with like one guy, one guy who ended up leaving who like hasn't seen his kids in seven years. Um, uh, he wanted to be an actor and his wife, who was an arranged marriage as these all are, I guess, uh, or pretty much all are, um, knew that he was like going off on auditions and they were like, it was a secret that she was keeping with him. And he, he thought she was like on his side mm -hmm. and that at a certain point she, I guess essentially told on him and he was like, uh, forced to either give up his life or give up his dream or whatever. Yeah. And he ended up leaving the community and, um, uh, yeah, hasn't seen his wife and, or seven, hasn't seen his kids in seven years. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really heavy, heavy movie. Um, but, uh, and there's then the third kid, the, the younger, youngest one who's left, um, you see him really, really the impetus of him leaving is struggling with, 
faith and whether or not mm-hmm. he believes what they believe. And so you see me actually moves to Florida and for a time becomes a born again Christian. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't end up working out for him right. either. But it is interesting that he's sort of like yeah. uh, at sea and afloat and trying to grab onto, a, 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 you know, to find out what he believes. It's uh, really an interesting documentary. And, mm-hmm. What was the name of it again? Uh, One of us. Okay. Uh, okay. So next up is, another rewatch okay we're, we're almost out of that by the way sorry okay. um i think i might have this might be the second or third rewatch in as many months because i've been listening to the aliens minute podcast okay and so i rewatched aliens which okay. i've seen you know a bunch of times at, all the way from when i was like eight and every t- and i like it more and less every time um on one hand i think it's super schlocky and broad and just, you know, a deeply flawed script, especially from a dialogue standpoint, a characterization standpoint. Um, I've said it before. I think James Cameron is a very good storyteller, like by which I mean story by James Cameron screenplay by anyone else. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, the 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 way that he has these marines talk like the i think the act the actors kind of transcend it but like they're they're archetypes but not and i which is not a crime but it's the way that they're archetypes and when you hear him like talk about what he wanted this to be which is you know a vietnam metaphor the glee with which uh the glee he takes uh in killing them um is more and more apparent and just the idea it's like seeing this is not particularly tragic, like playing up their bravado so much so that when they eventually get their comeuppance, which I mm-hmm. guess they are due, I don't know, is something that uh, it's tough because you can't take, you, I can't remove his comments from seeing the film and knowing that okay. that's something he never said like, I love killing these characters. He doesn't say that, but just the way he talks about it as a metaphor, um, it seems pretty clear. Um, it's nowhere like it's nowhere near like what he did with the militaristic characters in avatar um but of course ripley as a character is still great and still very solid and i think i like newt more and more every time and i think i like bishop more and more every time so there's still he's still doing a lot of really strong stuff and from a filmmaking standpoint and a special effects standpoint it's it's uh, astonishing you know the more you find out about how the queen was done and the mixture of a life-size puppet and, and Mm -hmm. like a a, a miniature and it's absolutely seamless. Like it it really is astonishing. So it's a film that in some ways I will, I will always enjoy watching, but for me, um, and I guess I'm kind of, uh, repeating something that, uh, John Engelover on the aliens minute podcast, which is now in its final two minutes. Um, Mm. what he said, which is just like, he said for many years he was kind of on the fence about which he liked more alien or aliens. Now for me, I've liked alien more for a long time, but now it's like, it's it not even close. Like I think alien from a, from a script standpoint, from a, and certainly from just a tone and visual mm-hmm. standpoint, I think alien is like a full on work of art. Every film is a work of art, of course, but I think aliens, uh, is an ex definitely an exercise. And I think giving the audience every single thing they want. All right. Um, I won't spend too long on this one. I saw um, Paul McGuigan's Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Okay. Um, 
It's a handsome movie. It's very well acted. It's on, and that Bending's part, it's incredibly well acted. Yeah. Um, and Jamie Bell, right? He's, yes. Okay. Yeah. And they have fantastic yeah. chemistry together. Um, but it's just that there's, there's not really any, uh, surprises in the movie. I guess it's, it's just kind of, uh, at least the leisure seeker was not what I expected. Yeah. But you could, what I'm saying is you could read the Wikipedia entry on the relationship between Gloria Graham and, uh, Peter, uh, Turner, I think was his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could tell me <laughs> without seeing the movie, how the movie's going to, you know, what yeah. the movie's going to be. Uh, it's just, yeah. Filming a Wikipedia <laughs> entry, but again, with a terrific performance by Annette Bening. Um, that happens a lot. Like it's, she just, uh, what was it? Being Julia. Um, I never saw that one actually where she kind of plays these, these old time showy parts and she's great, but the movies are just like, who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I also think she's, um, I don't want to like, I'm always nervous about like talking about this sort of thing, like being purient or whatever, but the, she's playing Gloria Graham, who was like a sex symbol mm-hmm. and she's playing, a sexy middle-aged woman. Yeah. And there, and I don't just mean, that I'd she, say she always is. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I don't just mean that she looks good. She's mm-hmm. a beautiful woman, but I mean, she's playing sexy in a yeah. way that like it's, it's, it's interesting, I guess from an acting standpoint to see her sort of turn that on. No pun intended. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, because she doesn't always, which is not to say, like I said, she's always yeah. a beautiful woman, but you look at something like, uh, uh, what was the mother and child where she's playing a sort of very, uh, she's playing a, a, a nurse who's very sort of tired a lot of the time. And, yeah. You know, and I'd say the kids are all right. Or is that kind of thing? Like she can play like very straightforward kind mm-hmm. of, not necessarily weather beaten, but definitely kind of there's sort of a weary quality to her. But then, you know, you look at her in Bugsy or the grifters and it's like, Oh sure, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, terrifically performance, not really worth your time. All right, here we go. Movies I haven't seen before. <laughs> I saw Better Watch Out. Oh, yes. Um, let's talk about What did you think? Uh, I loved it. Good. Um, it is, as you described it, like there is a, you know there's something coming up, like some kind of twist. And I had an idea of what it might be. Um, and then it winds up being this whole other thing. And what I like is once that twist comes... Every possibility is on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's frustrating because I can't talk about it. But like once certain characters are revealed to be this and other characters are not, it's just like anybody can die at any point. I don't know what to expect. It's, it, you know, not unlike Psycho, there's such a, there's such a twist there. Not, not that this is quite as exciting as that, but um, there's such a twist that it's like, well, now I don't know what to expect. And the film just has me mm-hmm. like from big beginning to end. Um, and I think the performances are, are wonderful all around. Um, you, did you ever see the visit? Uh, no, I never saw okay. it because my friend Reed, I saw it with him and I recognized that the main character's friend is in the visit. What I failed to realize is that the main, uh, that the babysitter is also in the visit. They play brother and sister in that. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, I think the acting is pretty much great all the way around. Um, and I was just trying to think like, okay, so this film does seem to be about certain things and it definitely, 
you know, in the way of, uh, I don't think it's necessarily about the friend zone, but I think there is something to be said for the, the idea of this kid who, yeah, he's 12 and she's 17. So that's not going to happen anyway. Um, but it's just the way he feels so entitled Mm -hmm. to whatever he wants and that he's just so great at, and all he has to do is play into a certain image of himself and, uh, and he can be forgiven. And in some cases, like he never even did it. Um, and just that he's a complete, you know, in, in many ways it's like, you know, it's Kevin McAllister by way of Tom Ripley or maybe vice versa. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And I just feel like the, the film has so much to say because it really is just this one woman and she's surrounded by men that she has been in some way romantically connected to, or somebody would like that to be the case. And I also really like that when these other characters show up, they're not here, they're not there very long. Um, but one of them actually turns out to be remarkably likable and sympathetic. And the other is not, but you also don't want anything like that to happen to him. And I'm already kind of spoiling things. I, it, yeah. But I, and I feel bad I'm about that. I'm trying to but. think which one you found more sympathetic. Uh, the first one or the second one? The first one. Okay. The second one is kind of, well, I guess he's more pathetic. Yeah. The way yeah. he's introduced yeah. in the car, like psyching himself up is like very funny. Also kind of sweet in a way it is, you know, and, and the first guy, like he does seem like such a, such like a potentially abusive blowhard, but it's just like, Oh, actually no. Like he does seem to, he's yeah. being very honest about his feelings. And so, and I think that's what I like is that I like any film and it happened with Krampus as well, by the way, that it introduces these character archetypes and then either completely switches to an archetype that isn't one, or it just fleshes out the characters in a way that you, you can't help but be on their side a little bit. And I love the way the film ends. Um, part of me was like, eh, are they tacking this on so that like it's satisfying? Cause it could be frustrating in the, in a perfect way if it, if it didn't have that ending. Um, but I'm fine with it because it's a nice payoff. Yeah. Uh, like something is set, a certain loaded prop is set up all throughout the film as like an item used for oppression, but then it is, it is utilized as like a life saving thing, uh, at the end. And so I thought that was a nice use of it. Yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. So listeners, check it out. It's yeah. on uh, Shutter. That's how I saw it. Oh, it's also you can also rent it on Amazon. Okay, it's not and on it's, Amazon Prime, but it's rentable. And hopefully, I've been vague enough. Probably not, but it, it really is a, a marvelous film. Yeah, uh, it's and it's the time of year. It's a Christmas. Absolutely. Movie. All right. Um, keeping in with, I've watched a lot of Netflix documentaries. Apparently, I watched uh, Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold, which is a documentary about Joan Didion, directed by her nephew Griffin Dunn. Oh, hey. <laughs> um, uh, and I think it's one of those movies that made me like, I, I enjoyed watching it and I definitely like, I, you know, I definitely want to read more Joan Diddy and I think she was a fascinating, uh, lady, um, as a documentary. It's, it, you know, it's a hagiography. It's a puff piece. Mm. You know, it's, it's not, I don't think it's great filmmaking in a lot of ways, but it yeah. is, she's an interesting lady and this is an interesting portrait of her. Um, and also just like the, the way that, uh, it advocates not only for her as a person, but sort of her as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you get an insight uh, into like someone asked, I'm trying to remember what the question is. Like he asked, like, 
um, you know, uh, what was it like when you went to that house and you found out they'd been giving their toddler LSD and hmm. whatever. And she was like, Oh, it's fantastic. Like, because she gets to write this in a story now. She's yeah, yeah. Like you don't get stuff like that in a story. Like just setting aside like the human part of like, that's monstrous. Yeah. She's like, that's going to be great for my story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's terrific. And yeah, she's still very, uh, uh, animated and fun to watch uh to this to this day and griffin dunn there's a part because griffin dunn is in the movie a bit uh and he shares a story of an embarrassing childhood memory that happened in front of her Mm -hmm. and how all of his parents and relatives laughed at him except for her uh and that's like like she has no memory of this at all yeah uh but um he's telling the story as like this is something that meant a lot to me and yeah. made me feel close to you when I was a, when I was a kid and she hearing the story now can't stop. laughing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, uh, what's next for you? Next is Steven Spielberg's the post. Okay. Which I have seen, but it was, like I said, I was under embargo. Right. Uh, I wasn't able to talk about it before. I really liked it at times. I loved it. And I will say, I feel like this is the most engaged Steven Spielberg has been since Munich. That's, I would say the, uh, yeah, uh, engaged is maybe not the word I would have thought to use, but yeah, it's definitely the most something since Munich. There's, uh, whether it be like a shockingly active camera by Janusz Kaminski, or just this, this tone of urgency, and probably for the same reason, Mm -hmm. like Munich, what he was talking about you know he's using like a a a story from the past the 1970s um to comment on where things are right now and you know using the the story of of uh you know the the terrible things that happened in munich and the things that happened afterwards to comment on certainly the israel palestine situation now and maybe forever but also just the way america deals with terror and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing and much the same way like the post there's a sense of urgency almost as though like he, like so many others where he's like, I don't, it's like, I don't expect Donald Trump to, to win. And then he did. It's like, okay, I hear uh, now I got to do something uh, about it and yeah. tells this really fascinating the timeline, story. By the way, I learned from the Q and a after this meeting okay. is even more collapse than that. He didn't get, he didn't see this script until February of this year. Wow. Was shooting in June. And now the movie's out. Like, and that's, I feel like you can tell, Yeah, but in a great way that just like, you know, uh, while I, if I were to watch this movie, I don't think I would immediately realize it was a Steven Spielberg film. Um, just because when I think of him, I think of, of bigger movies as far as their scope, mm-hmm. but certainly with the John Williams music and, and that sort of thing, it, it feels like it, but it maybe engaged isn't the right word, but it just, it's, he just, he's, I think he's angry and I think, but I think he, Steven Spielberg angry still is hopeful and so like well the anger can't just stay like it needs to be channeled into something more positive and so i i thought the film was it speechifies quite a bit but i'm okay with it because it's a great cast and um speechifying about something that needs to be said it needs to be said now yeah i will something that i believe of course i think like looking at people's end of the year you know uh lists and and write-ups and stuff i'm realizing that different critics fall into different places Mm -hmm. on this to me i think the message of the movie is urgent yeah and meaningful enough that 
the preachiness of it is actually in a way a virtue. And when you think about it, these are characters that probably would do this. They would think in these terms. They are writers yeah. and they are in some ways philosophers, certainly about their own industry. So I don't think that's, uh, and I like that it's, it's not that it's nonpartisan, but like when you hear, when, when somebody's, when Tom Hanks's feet are being like held to the fire as far as Kennedy, mm-hmm. it speaks to like, journalists aren't necessarily, uh, uh, objective all yeah. the time. And it's something that you need to search for because not that I'm looking to get in a fight, but I think I genuinely believe that journalists were very kind to Barack Obama. Um, because first off, he's a very likable person. And, you know, and if you look at like the debates between him and Romney and you saw like Candy Crowley instinctively coming to Obama's defense and then afterwards saying like, you know what? I actually think uh, Governor Romney was correct. And it's like, well, it's a shame you didn't think of that in the moment because now that's just out there. And now it looks like this objective moderator that the, that the governor was saying something so egregiously wrong that you couldn't help but say something. Meanwhile, turns out he was right. And so like stuff like that bothers me and just the way that people demand, uh, they demand things of, of somebody. Don't get me wrong. There was the whole birth certificate thing, which is horseshit, but like we need to see somebody's like financial records. We need to see this and this. And like I, I read article after article about Obama being like the smartest president we've ever had despite never seeing his grades, never seeing his classes. Not that I require that, but I feel like if that's the, if that's what you're going to point to, we need to see the other thing. Um, and so look like, sorry, but no, I you're, went you're, off. you're right. Maybe like these attacks on the press from our current president will, you know, if we have some hope, if we can look, look to the sky, like at the end of Blade Runner 2049, sure. yeah. well, um, hopefully not in the same context, but yeah, <laughs> might be for us. Um, <laughs> Uh, then maybe this will hit a sort of reset button and, you know, remind journalists that they should be adversarial of all presidents, not just the ones who are adversarial toward them. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, hit every president as hard as you can hit them. Not to be an asshole. But but that's the point. And what I like about this is that, like, it says, like, yeah, Kennedy was kind of a hawk, you know, certainly. Um, And... And that it's not merely that like, oh, they liked him, but like in some cases, like they're friends with him and how difficult that. And I I love the portrayal of Robert McNamara. So I'm sorry, everybody, for getting political, but it's a film that I think requires it. Um, It requires you to think of like, what is the role of the press? And, you know, and everyone is going to be subjective. You can't help it. And so the most you can do is just the most you can hope for is have a moment of realization and be like, Oh my gosh, I it's frustrating. I'm only now arriving here. I wish I had earlier, but that I think is one of the great things about this film. I do think that Tom Hanks is maybe it's not his fault. I think the character, I feel like he's, I think he's a supporting character. I think this is Mar- uh, Meryl Streep's film and I think yeah. she's marvelous. I think if there's a lead, it's Meryl Streep. I think of it mostly as an ensemble because like, yeah, I think so. There are scenes where Matthew <laughs> Reese is the lead. There are scenes where yeah. Bob Odenkirk is the lead. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. true. But I think in the end, none of that matters until she makes a decision and the scene in which she makes that decision. She's so great. She is great because it just shows that like, yeah, bravery isn't captain America. It isn't somebody who stands up and says, I, sir, I think this it's, it's sometimes like, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of, you're not sure of it at all, Can I but tell, now, but now it's too late. At the, <laughs> you know? So the Q and a at the screening was Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and yeah. Steven Spielberg were all there. 
and they talked about that scene and how, cause there's a bunch of people on the phone on different lines at once. Yeah. And so, Oh, it's great. Spielberg is shooting Meryl Streep, but everyone else is doing their part in like a soundproof tent off set. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep are both joking about how like this is Meryl Streep knows this is like the most important part of the movie for her. Yeah. And all these guys are just like fucking around cracking <laughs> jokes in this tent, like not at all appreciating like what a difficult yeah. day at work this is for Meryl Streep. Um, and they laughed about it now, but, uh, but you know, yeah, yeah, I mean that is obvious that, that, that scene is the, the big one for her, but also the scene, the, the scene between her and Bruce Greenwood is Robert McNamara. The one that's just them. Yeah. Uh, is terrific. It's great. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff like that. Our friend Pat is, uh, Pat Healy is, is also yeah. great in the movie. And it's nice that he was on the phone at one point. Yeah. I, I do want to mention, okay. So having, having, uh, talked about how like all presents, you know, their, their feet need to be held to the fire. What I like about that McNamara scene is that it acknowledges that, like, there are some that are particularly egregious. And the way he's talking about, he goes, he goes, Nixon is different Mm -hmm. in the same way that I would say Donald Trump is different. Like as much as I, as many problems as I may have with Obama, and I know I voted for him in in 2008 and then he disappointed me tremendously. And plus my philosophy has changed, but as many issues as there's, um, I don't want to like, because I'm a liberal, I don't want to join the liberal bashing parade, but I feel like he disappointed a lot of people who voted him in 2008, except so many of them convinced themselves that he didn't. Do you know what I mean? I guess especially, so, yeah. I feel like especially there's a tendency, I think, to look back with rose-colored glasses at President Obama now mm-hmm. uh, among among liberals. Like, oh, well, like, sure. wish we could have him back or blah, blah, yeah. blah. It's like, okay, I get that he definitely was a better representative of the country, certainly. Um, and for liberals, he put through a lot of stuff, you know, that I agree with. But also this is a guy who killed we're learning more and more every day how many yeah. civilians were killed by drone strikes he in, increased surveillance of you know yeah. of uh, invasions of privacy of american citizens yeah. he like every president overused the uh executive order and abused the that's like my the, big uh, issue uh, <laughs> with, with that's anybody one, that's my biggest yeah going back i mean i first became aware of it with george w bush but it goes back before that oh yeah uh and continues to this day and i just feel like Look, I'm a liberal too, and I definitely think Obama was, uh, you know, the best president of my lifetime. But it doesn't do us; it doesn't help us at all to talk about him like he's our boyfriend. Like, it, we, yeah, we're supposed like we're not supposed to trust any president. Yeah, we vote for them, and then we immediately should turn on them and yeah. hold and and as you use your term, hold their feet to the fire every single day. Yeah, because uh, like that, it's the most powerful man in the world. Like, that's a big deal. You know, somebody who can declare war if they want to. That's a big deal. Oh, I remember, I hate, the thing about Twitter is I see so many great, like, jokes, and then I forget who to attribute them to, but there was... You saw it on Twitter. You didn't come up with it. There was a very funny tweet back in January during the inauguration that was something along the lines of, like... Uh, the peaceful transfer of power is really such an amazing thing. One moment, Barack Obama is the leader of the free world. The next, it's Angela Merkel. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, so that speaks, like, I feel like the converse, the political conversation changed once Trump even got the nomination because it's just like, okay, well, we can't, and in some case, for some people, it's like, that was very exciting. Cause like, Oh, he's a new, you know, he's an outsider. So we got to talk differently. It's like, 
I wish it were only that, mm-hmm. but like we, we talk differently about him because of the way he demonizes, you know, like, you know, conservatives for years have said like, it's like, ah, the press is against us and all that, but it's different now. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and, and that's what I like is that, is that it does ultimately say like, everybody needs to be careful about their own, their own worries. Uh, uh, sorry. They need to be worried about their own, uh, subjectivities and, and biases, but every once in a while, somebody comes along that requires special attention because of the way they conduct themselves, whether it be super secretive or overtly uh, uh, aggressive towards a, a specific group of people or a specific profession or whatever it is. And so, like, The Post is just such a such an of-the-moment film that didn't... <clears throat> It doesn't feel overly that. It still works on its own terms, I think. Um, and uh, I really, and you know what? Now that I talk more about it, I feel like I think I might. I think it is moving up in my list. The more I talk about it, I really, really like yeah, it. It's the, be- it's the best I've seen Spielberg in years. Yeah, it probably is my favorite Spielberg since Munich. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, moving on to uh, well loved and not at all controversial new movies. Okay. I saw. Ryan Johnson's Star Wars The Last Jedi. All right, that's one of mine as well. Okay. Um, it took me about 48 hours to, to decide how I feel about it, but I love it. Okay. It, it's amazing how quickly, even without a repeat viewing, which is as soon as the credits started rolling, I was like, I'm going to need to see this again yeah. to like decide for sure how I feel about it because so much of it wasn't what I expected. And also there's large chunks of the movie that I think could... Uh, either be excised or sped up. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but at the end of it all, after thinking about it for 48 hours, I was, I was like, yeah, I, but I don't care. Like this is, and I think part of it was just seeing, not that like reading other people's opinions changed my mind, but I feel like at least in the circles of critics that I read, I don't remember in my life, in my memory, at least, there's no Star Wars movie that has been discussed to this extent as cinema and not just as a part of the Star Wars saga. You know, I was going to say Star Wars has always been a broad strokes thing. Like you think in the, in like, like, okay, it's like everything is just so big and grand. I feel like it's not until this movie, like you were talking about cinematically. It's like, we haven't, I feel like seen any real character complexity until this movie. Um, and it just like, but also the way that the little, I don't know what you call them, like tableaus or whatever, but just the, the, these like almost single frame images, the the plural of tableau is tableau, except with an X at the end, but it's silent. So it's pronounced the same way. Tabs low, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Um, but you know what I mean? Just these, these, they're not single frame, but they might as well be like that shot of John Wayne in the in the searchers just like uh-huh. silhouetted. Well, there's something like that of Luke. And then Laura Dern's character does something really amazing. And Ryan Johnson I knows I literally gasped in the theater. Oh yeah. At that. It was and so, just like, yeah. and he knew, he knew that you were going to gasp and he did it in a way that I didn't feel manipulated. Like this is a big deal. Yeah. And it just, and you're right. Like I now it's a film that allows me to think of it in really complex terms, not merely thematically complex and not merely like, Oh, this is darker than other films than the other films like empire. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I don't think it's that. Okay. Sorry. There's a biker gang outside. It's just one guy. It's a lone, but, um, lone biker. It's, it's renegade. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the, what's that Simpsons where like, where his friend just played voiced by uh, Hank Azari is like, I heard that renegade. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm sorry I interrupted, but it is just, it's a film that, I'm excited to talk about on a cinematic level, and I haven't really had that before. Uh, it, yeah, um, the, you mentioned uh, a few set pieces. <coughs> you didn't mention, I guess, I'm not sure what to call it other than uh, like Snoke's Lair, which is my. Every, I, I kept wanting to go back there. Every, yeah. every scene there, it's so simple, but it's like so striking and beautiful. Yeah, and it feels very. Um, I guess. It, I mean, not to be speaking too broad a brush, it felt very Japanese. It felt like Kurosawa yeah. or like something out of anime with that sort of like just single color, yeah. you know, background. Um, and then the, what I've learned are called Praetorian Guard. The, sure. Uh, apparently the, the, the soldiers around Snoke. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, and also, I think, I didn't have, I, I, I've read a lot. It took me a while to bother to look into why so many fanboys were upset with it. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if you've read extensively about it, but there's, I've heard that people don't, some people don't care for it. Uh, it's people have some pretty stark, uh, um, complaints that Mm -hmm. I think are mostly about like, but this thing was this way in my head and it didn't, the movie isn't what I, what I had decided was going to happen after I saw the force awakens or after any of the other existing movies. And so most of that stuff was stuff that like, I'm not invested enough in the mythology to even have like thought about while I was watching. Yeah. And other stuff is the stuff that I specifically liked. Like I know it's the movie just, it's been a week and I imagine it's already like, a hugely high grossing movie. And I imagine people who are listening have probably seen it already. Yeah, it's doing okay, but I don't want to get in just in case I don't want to spoil anything, yeah. but there is, um, a conversation about Ray's parentage. That was like, to me, I was like, this is what I wanted. Absolutely. And even the, um, the very last scene of the movie. I don't know if you remember the, uh, it's, I love it. Uh, that was, and this is what I want. And those are specific things that fanboys have a problem with. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, and so that, that, that pissed me off. But one of the things that people complained about that I actually loved about it was how goofy the humor is in it. There, I go back and forth on that. As some of the humor fell, a good portion of the humor fell flat for me. Um, I, I, I liked it because I think, um, uh, there's okay. In a way, this is this movie is very different from any Star Wars movie before, you know, in, in specifics. But mm-hmm. I think in general and in in ambition and in frame of mind, it's the most Star Wars movie since the original, or at least yeah. you know the the prequels, which I don't think are are good. At least like still have a single point of view like a George, you know George Lucas as an auteur yeah. you know I think um, whereas I think Force Awakens which is better than the prequels as a movie still f- feels a little bland overall you know, I, I think the performances sure. and character work is, are good um, but it, here's, here's what I've decided about thinking about it is that we as a as an as a country that embraces all things Star Wars and sure. is obsessed with Star Wars, we kind of needed Force Awakens and Rogue One in order to get to 
The Last Jedi. Yeah. Because we needed Force Awakens to kind of like ground things again to by basically remaking a new hope. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we, it was, it was just sort of like getting in alignment in a way, uh, um, with, with force awakens. And then rogue one we needed because we needed, I feel like so much Star Wars has become such a focus of so much reverence yeah. that sometimes people forget that they are like family, like kid friendly movies. You yeah. know, they're supposed to be fun, kind of corny adventure, you know, uh, fantasy type movies. Mm. And so rogue one was like, okay, let's go ahead and make the serious dour Star Wars movie, which is yeah. not a complaint. I think rogue one's amazing. Um, because of that, because it is despite the word war being in every title. Yeah. Rogue One is the first Star Wars movie that's a war movie, really. Yeah. Although Last Jedi actually has some good war stuff near the end. It's beautiful, by the way. Yeah. That that planet, holy shit, it's so cool. Um, anyway, uh, so we needed to first realign our relationship with Star Wars. Then we needed to get the reverential, serious Dower one out of the way. And now it's like the doors are open, and now we can go back to just like let's see what a star Wars movie can be. Yeah. You know, and Ryan Johnson, which is, who is a director that I have gone back and forth on over here. Like I'm not nearly as big a fan of the brothers bloom or looper as some people are. Um, I love brick. I love Ozymandias, the uh, Breaking Bad episode that he directed, but he also directed the uh, Breaking Bad episode fly, which is the bottle episode that I think is way overrated. Yeah. Um, so I've gone back and forth with, uh, with Ryan Johnson's stuff. Although he also directed a mountain goods video for woke up new. I don't know if you've hmm. ever seen it. It's a really good video. I believe I have. Cause uh, I love that song. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, I've gone back and forth, but this is, I think I might, as much as I still love brick, this might be my favorite Ryan Johnson movie now. Uh, I would need to see it again. I think, um, and brick is pretty damn good. I, but, but I think this is, I think I never thought of him as a particularly cinematic director, I just he he had a command of the camera and I and that's fine but he hasn't done anything to this scope not that that makes you cinematic but he is able to he was very much able to rise to this level and 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 I think really up the ante as far as this entire series as you say cinematically um here's something that I had that I thought <clears throat> The prequels, the way they were made, I think an argument can be made that they wouldn't be made that way, whether it be technically or narratively, Mm -hmm. if not for Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. I think an argument could be made that this film... Wait. But the prequel started before Lord of the Rings. Well, one of them did, yes. Um, But I think, like, as... uh, And and perhaps I'm... Perhaps I'm... I'm completely wrong, but... Because, yeah, uh, uh, was it... um, Phantom Menace was 99 and then Lord of the Rings is 2001. And so like, I think Lord of the Rings probably did impact. Um, I did, I think it definitely impacted, uh, revenge of the Sith. And then maybe it impacted, uh, uh, attack of the clones a little bit, but just like this, a huge CG, like everything CG and then trying to do everything at once and trying to also expand the, the universe mm-hmm. a little bit and show, middle earth or show this galaxy. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's something I'm only now just thinking about, but I definitely think that Battlestar Galactica, my, what little understanding I have of it definitely informed the narrative element of this film. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like even de- it, when you think about, it, yeah, I actually, yeah, I actively thought about Battlestar Galactica yeah. while, while watching it. 
I mean, think about how, and I think in doing so, it really ups the stakes. When you realize, like, oh, the entire the entire Rebel Alliance or the Resistance, Resistance. pardon me, yeah. is on, uh, is contained on these ships, and only these ships. They don't have a base. Like, if these ships are destroyed, there is no more Resistance. Like that is like the concept of that is so fascinating to me because up in, because like in any of the films up until this point it always felt like yeah the empire is huge but there are rebels everywhere and with this one it's like no it's it's about as ragtag as you can get and it's very limited and so it just feels and in that again i've only seen the the miniseries and then episode the first episode of Battlestar Galactica but it reminded me of that yeah um, trying to stay one step ahead yeah. of the enemy so <clears throat> I, yeah I really enjoyed it I thought they were doing some great character stuff I love the the Ray parentage thing and mm-hmm. interesting compare that to without giving away spoilers a big revelation in Blade Runner like oh. how like when you think of what it means the idea yeah. of like great things coming out of seemingly nowhere uh and how that kind of runs counter to a lot of fantasy films like you're the chosen ones like no 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 there is no chosen one you just make your own decisions yeah. and that's more important i think yeah. that's more inspiring but yeah so sorry we yeah, we should. It, we this should was yours, on. and I talked. Wait, no, but no, it's both of ours because okay. we're not going to talk about it again when we get to your. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> I think we're. I've got more to say. Uh, well, I do have one, the only other thing I'll, I'll have to say. I do think the. I guess it's called Canto Bite, the uh, the, the 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 casino yeah. uh, city thing. I think that sequence is a little. There's a little more time spent there than there needs to be. Yeah, thumbs down. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, not all. I think that it's important. I'm glad they went there both both for story and for thematic reasons i'm glad we saw some stuff but i do yeah. think there's a little too much time spent there and i do love i really like benicio del toro's character as i tend to yeah um, the director and writer of shape of water that's oh man he's having a good year <laughs> um but uh and also like when they essentially let like the horses loose yeah and, remember, and they're like oh that's you know it's like that's you know it's like it's all worth it for that i was like is it your friends are about to die like <laughs> yeah keep yeah. your eye on the prize here guys yeah that's true that's so true. you know uh, um okay <laughs> next uh, for yeah, me you're up, you're up next i forgot is james franco's the disaster artist oh hey that's another overlap we have hey all right we're gonna be out of here in no time um over two hours oh geez um okay I, in spite of myself, somehow I did not expect to like it, um, but I actually liked it quite a bit. Um, I think it's a story very, in many ways, very Ed Wood. And so it's just, uh, it inspired me to like, I would like to do an episode about movies about bad artists, you know, Um, Florence Foster Jenkins is in there. Um, And what we can, what we are meant to like glean from films like that. But, uh, and Florence Foster Jenkins has a line that's maybe a bit too pithy, but I always really liked it. And I think it applies very much to this where she says, you know, people will say I couldn't sing, but they won't say I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm be like, Hey, that's kind of nice. Um, and so I do think like, I, I think it's a nice little love letter to Tommy Wiseau, but I think it's also very honest about him, uh, on set. Like, and it's hard to know if he acted that way because he, felt that way or in his mind it's like well the great actor the great directors act like this right Uh um and i like that he stays mysterious um i think his performance i think franco's performance is very good it's 
appropriately comedic while also a little bit tragic and also very frustrating at times. Um, I think Dave Franco is not talked about enough. Like as the straight man and essentially the, uh, audience entry point, I think he does a, a really great job as well. Um, it's just a film all around that I, that I liked. I don't think I necessarily loved, but I really, uh, enjoyed it. I do think that the little sequence they have there at the end is pretty much masturbatory and I think completely unnecessary. Uh, and I would say, okay, I think you liked it more than I did because I, um, uh, I think the masturbatory stuff at the end starts, it starts before the credits roll. I think pretty much the whole end of the movie from when it leaps forward from the production to the premiere night sure. is all, it seems like the room fan service to me. Uh, and it I, could be. And yes. I think the, the way that the premiere goes can't be how it was in real life. And it's, is ludicrous to me. Yeah. Um, because it kind of implies that the room became a cult status by like, or became a cult film by the time it had finished playing the first <laughs> right. time, which is not, I, I just can't, I don't know much about the room. I've never seen it. Uh, I don't want to see it. Um, and I, but I can't believe that's how it happened. Yeah. Um, as far as the other stuff, the rest of the movie, the movie, I, the movie, I think, I think, uh, I like the movie as a comedy first. Sure. Um, it's, it's, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew that it was this funny. Like, I, mm. I think I knew it was like a dramedy, but I thought it was more on the former than the latter. Yeah. Uh, but I laughed so hard watching this movie. Um, there's so much stuff, you know, and it's a lot of it is just down to his, just the way that he talks. Yeah. Just like when, during Eric Grainer's, uh, <laughs> audition she's like I could do it again and he's like no don't do it again because you got the part <laughs> <laughs> or when they show up at his LA apartment he's like it's my pied a terre <laughs> there's so much uh, what is it Josh Hutchinson saying how old is character supposed to be like your age 15 16 I'm, I'm 26, 26. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, there's so much funny stuff in the movie um, yeah anyway um, but yeah and I think the other stuff the, the relationship stuff is is there and it's and it's decently done um but it is also kind of uh, yeah it, it relies a lot on i think those two lead performances so i guess i don't it's sort of like what we were saying about inside out earlier and this mm-hmm. really bothered you bothered me but not to the same extent yeah i like this stuff about the disaster artist you like just not as much and i mostly think of it as a uh it, i think the ending mars it a lot for me yeah um and i think of it as a, mostly a mediocre to sometimes good movie that is saved by being consistently very funny. Yeah. I'll say this. It's a film I haven't thought about really since seeing it. I think of his performance from time to time in a couple scenes here and there, but like, you know, um, I compared it to Ed Wood. I'm certainly not the only person to do that. Um, that's a film I think about a lot. Yeah. And when I first saw it, I think the, the, I think I watched it again the next day. Um, this is not a film I could see myself returning to maybe once because I do think that performance is really fun and, uh, and really committed. But, uh, see, and that's funny. Cause I could absolutely see myself returning to it just because I laughed so much. At that's it. true. And, yeah. And Natalie and I have spent a lot of time saying, remember that, remember that? Like, yeah. Because there's a lot of funny stuff that happens yeah. in the movie and that goes a long way for me. Not as much as it used to. I think that's something we've talked about over the years that it used to be that if a movie was funny enough, I didn't care about anything else. Yes. Uh, and I've 
I've changed on that uh, uh, gradually over the years, but the disaster artist is consistently very funny and that's kind of enough for me. I do wonder, and this is not a thing I say very often. um, I do wonder having seen the room, I wonder if that facilitated my liking it more than you do. Okay. Um, It might. Um, Because if you, if you had seen the room, I can't guarantee it though, but I, I I honestly would suggest that you see it because it is fascinating. There is stuff from the clips, like the things that we see recreated in the clips that they show at the end from the room. There is stuff that made me think maybe I should see this. Like the, like, I mean, I think a lot of the big stuff, like, Oh, hi Mark. Like that's in the cultural lexicon at this point. I knew about all that, but the one with the, the character that Jackie Weaving plays saying, (laughs) <laughs> the results are in. I definitely yeah. have breast cancer. That's yeah. That's very funny to me. Yeah. That, 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 that that's in a movie. Um, oh, that reminds me of another great. Uh, and I think Jackie Weaver does a, does yeah. a fun job too. When she passes out from the heat, and, yeah. and Tommy Wiseau is like, uh, uh, or James Franco is Tommy Wiseau is like, it's not because she's hot; it's because she's old lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> And it's just fascinating that like he has these unlimited reserves of money, but he won't pay for air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Like that's where it stops or water. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, and he insists that, you know, you don't get water in a real Hollywood movie. Yeah, it's like, yes. You do. Um, but I also, <laughs> and what I will say about the room is that one of the things that I find so fascinating about it is that when we talk about like, ah, that's a great bad movie, it's almost always genre. It's almost always sci-fi, horror, whatever it is, fantasy. Um, the Room is a drama, and uh-huh. basically just a, a, a melodrama, though I don't know if he sees it as a melodrama. Um, and that's fascinating, that mm-hmm. that this straightforward relational drama could be so inept as to be every bit as funny and over-the-top as... Uh, a misfire of a sci-fi film. Um, yeah. So I do think, yeah. uh, I do think it's okay. worth seeing. Maybe I'll watch it. Um, last thought that I had on the, cause I agreed. My instinct is to agree with you about the part at the end with the, like just shot for shot beat from yeah. beat recreations being masturbatory. But do you think maybe if I'm being kind to the movie, do you think maybe that's, there are enough people who came to the the disaster artist wanting it to be that, that that's James Franco going like throwing them a bone at the end. If they, if they hadn't done the side by side and just showed a couple clips from the room uh-huh. or a scenes that we had referenced earlier, almost as if to say like, yes, it is that bad. Right. Because when you show it side by side, it's look how, look how oh, well yeah. I did. But if it's simply like uh, Ben Affleck did at the end of Argo, do you remember that? That there's like, still photography from the time. And it's like, look at the sets. We recreated it down to every like brick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That annoyed me. But like, if it was simply, but someone who hadn't seen the room, if you watch this movie, you could be incredulous and be like, surely not. Surely. How could uh-huh. it be this bad? And if he had simply shown one or two things that we had seen filmed before, then you could say like, wow, uh-huh. if anything, they were too kind. Um, that I would understand a little bit more, but doing it that way, it's everything about it is like, look at me, yeah. look how committed I am as a filmmaker. All right. Uh, moving on to a movie that I am so torn on. Okay. Scott Cooper's hostels. Oh, okay. As I said before, it's beautiful. It's a movie that made me wish that I could forget for two hours and 15 minutes how to speak English. Okay. Because 
I would love to just watch the movie and register that the performances are great while not actually having to deal with all of the stupid shit that they're saying. Okay. Like literally what the characters are saying and what the movie seems to be saying, which is so superficial as to be insulting at times. But the movie is so beautiful and so well made. Mm. Who and shot so it? Well acted. Uh, it's, you know, it's a it's a Japanese cinematographer who has done a lot of stuff that I didn't like before. He shot um, uh, Warrior, and he oh, shot okay. he shot Black Mass, which is also a Scott Cooper film. Mm, okay, um, yeah, I didn't care for that film. Um, and there's some, oh, he shot the state the American State of Play movie, which neither of us oh, liked. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's like the thematically is it, what it's about is it you know it it opens up. Okay, the movie is brutally violent throughout. Yeah. For it's two hours and 15, fifteen minutes, and like this is—I guess this is a minor spoiler—but no character is safe. Most of the characters in the movie die okay. by the end of the movie, uh, and it starts out. The opening scene is an unflinchingly brutal uh, uh, scene of a group of Comanche slaughtering a settler family, hmm. um, and then, but it immediately cuts from that to. Christian Bale's character, who's a army uh, captain in New Mexico and him and his men capturing and like humiliating and torturing a native American man. Yeah. Um, and it sort of goes back and forth on making these comparisons that, yeah. and I feel like what it is trying to say is like how I, I want to give him, give Scott could be the credit of saying that he's trying to say, how dare we call have called them savages. Right. when We were savage, but what it ends up coming across as a lot of the time is like, well, they did it too. And we did it too. Yeah. And it ends up feeling like by the end of the movie, I feel like I'm supposed to go like, well, that was, that was painful. That was rough there, but at least things are all healed between us and the yeah. Native Americans. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's so, uh, it's insultingly, uh, <laughs> shallow at times and but thinks it's so profound so much of the time um that it it really it really bothered me but still i feel like i'm gonna have to wheel out my uh, college intellectual voice and be like you know when you think about it (laughs) we're kind of hostiles too yeah yeah Yeah. i wrote this script (laughs) um and it's stupid but the thing is that dumbness doesn't extend beyond the themes of the movie. Cause even, uh, it, you know, it has a huge cast mm-hmm. and all of the characters are well drawn, individually drawn, individually acted. You know, they, they all are distinct. They're fantastic. There's so much that's good about this movie mm-hmm. that it is so disappointing that I kept rolling my eyes, yeah. uh, rolling my eyes at it. Um, so I don't know what to say. I, I would say if I had to, uh, if I were, um, allowed access to the tomato meter, I'd have to give it a rotten, but mm. it would be painful. Oh God, we didn't. Okay, never mind. That's a, the top of the next of our next main episode. We have a conversation. Okay, about. all right. Uh, next for me is actually Last Jedi, so we can just go back to you. <laughs> okay, next for me is the Disaster Artist, so we can go back to you. All is right, this your last one. This is my last one. Yes. Okay, and then I actually have. Sorry, I'm, I pulled a Tyler and I miscounted before we started, so I actually have five more to do. I don't like that you're calling me that, that you're calling it that, but... Um, <laughs> We've joked about this off mic, okay. that whenever we do the movie journal, it seems like more often than that, you're like, oh, I have one more. Uh, I do have one that I actually left off because I've talked about it before. Okay. It's a film I've rewatched and talked about on the movie journal many times. What is it? Hateful Eight. What is um, it? <laughs> when I was sick... Sorry, that was my uh, uh, Amanda Plummer in Pulp Fiction. 
What is what it? Is oh, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. I do two. There are two Amanda Plummer lines from Pulp Fiction that I use often. Okay. One is what is it? The other one is uh, pretty smart. <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, when Tim Roth lays out the idea of yeah, yeah. what if we robbed a diner and yeah. she's like getting almost like turned on by it mm-hmm. and she goes pretty smart and like really hits the T at the end. She's such a fascinating actress. Yeah. Um, okay. So David, okay. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to give a little preface here. Show don't tell. That is a standard, uh, statement of film philosophy, mm-hmm. um, maybe even artistic philosophy. Um, the uh, and I cannot think of a film that tells infinitely more than it shows than Molly's Game. <laughs> okay. Holy shit! All right, another one I've seen. No, thank you. Um, Jen, who is an Aaron Sorkin fan, was watching it with me, and she's like, "This movie's insufferable." <laughs> Um, good performances all around. Um, but that script, a, I am astonished that there is that much narration. Like it it really surprised me. Um, to the point of, I'd say overlying, uh, over relying. And when I say Mm -hmm. it's telling and not showing, I don't mean I don't merely mean that it's reliant too much on the script, but also the narration is telling you Mm -hmm. the other characters are telling you, everybody's always telling each other things, which I guess you could say is like, well, isn't that what script is? Isn't that what scripts are? It's like, not really. Yeah. Sometimes people say more by not saying anything which has never been Aaron Sorkin's thing, but this perhaps because he's the director as well. <clears throat> he just let himself do everything he wanted to do. And I think his instincts were uniquely bad yeah. uh, as a writer. And I think that like, again, perf- good performances, I think. And I think when you have a writer like him, it's always good to bring in an actor who is ki- who kind of runs counter to him and i think kevin costner does great i think he even though i even don't know he's in the worst scene in the movie yes yes <laughs> i don't know if you did you read the av club review no like, i didn't uh, i'm paraphrasing but they had something like nine out of ten directors who aren't aaron sorkin that would have been the first scene to get cut <laughs> yeah um but that scene is saved to the degree that it can be by his performance because mm-hmm. he actually ha- he's a very grounded actor and yeah. there's nothing grounded about Aaron Sorkin's writing style. And so not unlike a John Spencer uh, in the West Wing, just like that's his name, John Spencer, right? Who's a uh, uh, Leo? Yeah, yeah. Um, he doesn't have that cadence. And so he just seems different and it's i'd say like gene hackman and royal tenenbaums just these kind of i'd say grizzled oh, that's not older actors in script royal tenenbaums what's up <laughs> um and just like uh so i think that kevin costner does pretty well with it but again the nature of that scene is frustrating because it doesn't need to be there um michael sarah is is quite good That's and great. i think those are most effective bill camp of course yeah marvelous he's in, he's in hostels as well Bill Camp is in everything these days. Good for him. He's great. Good for him. He is a very reliable actor. And he got nominated for an Emmy. He did? For what? For the night of. Good for him. Um, Do you... Let me ask you this. I had not really known about him before Compliance. Compliance was not necessarily a well-known film, but I saw him a lot more after it. Do you think Compliance made didn't make his career, but do you think like that is why we're seeing him so much? I think so. Or it also could be... There's a name for that thing, the effect of like... 
Once oh you, yeah. Like, like when you buy a car, you see that car on the road. Yeah. Or everywhere. like you like hear a word that you've never, you think you've never heard before and you look it up Yeah, and then you start hearing it everywhere and you realize, Oh, I probably heard this word a lot before. I, ju- I just heard that fact. Was it in Molly's game that somebody says that <laughs> maybe, or maybe the, <laughs> I don't remember. Information in Molly's game. Um, it's speaking, you know, speaking of the voiceover, I actually, even though it's almost, it's the, uh, it's like Uber Sorkin, the opening narration and montage. I kind of like, I think it's really good. I think it's pretty solid. Um, even though it does feel like, uh, you know, with, I could read that narration, not with no name on it and know that it's Aaron. No question about it. And like at one point, uh, her, her narration says like, she's talking about her drug addiction. And she's like, she's like, she's like, I was so deep. I could go, I could go fracking. It's like, like, (laughs) I don't even remember that. Yeah. I remember because it was horrible. Um, (laughs) although like, but there's still, you know, he still is talented as a screenwriter, of course. And there's a nice moment that I think is sold by the acting where, you know, because there's talk of the crucible before that. And there's a moment when she says where Jessica Chastain's character says a line that I having not read it since high school did not immediately recognize as as being from the crucible. And then Idris Elba just has this moment. And then says like, now you read the, and it's, it's a very West wing kind of interaction, but I think he sells it and it made me laugh. I like to see your, this is the part like two lines later when he's, he says like, now like now you read the crucible like they're in the middle of this argument yeah, and she's yeah. like, it's really good. And he's like, it is really great. Yeah. And then they <laughs> go back to yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very Aaron Sorkin type thing, but I think it's, uh, it's a film that I, I threw it on because honestly I had a feeling it'd be kind of slight and I was, I was in kind of a, a dark mood and I uh-huh. didn't want to play into it. So I threw it on and it just got me in a worse mood because I was like, this is first off two hours and 20 minutes. If this film were, let's say 20, I'll say I'll settle for two hours. Uh-huh. If it were just two hours, I feel like I'd be less hostile towards it, but everything about it seems self-indulgent. And Aaron Sorkin is a guy that I do not want to indulge. Um, mm-hmm. and it also stands, it also, I think fits into, uh, this little theory I have that anytime like a writer or an actor decides they want to direct, they will often direct in a style that fits with maybe the, their most effective director previously, like confessions of a dangerous mind is absolutely Steven Soderbergh. And I think there's a lot in this that is social network. I think there's a lot of this that is, um, especially it's the way it uses montage. I think Aaron Sorkin is really trying to emulate aspects of David Fincher. Um, but he doesn't understand. He does not. He doesn't understand framing. Not that the movie is poorly framed no, or shot, but it's like, it's edited really well, but just somehow everything's, so workmanlike and efficient you know it's he's shooting and cutting to the dialogue and yeah and um david fincher didn't he did that when it was beneficial he didn't necessarily do that he let things play out uh or he let things he let there be moments of silence god forbid (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway and uh, i wonder if let's say the script was exactly the same but somebody else directed it i feel like it it would have to be better because, because uh, I think I, I just don't Hence, think Aaron Sorkin understands Tommy, uh, Tommy Wiseau. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> it certainly be more. You know, it might. I think it'd be more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that, like Aaron Sorkin, I just I think he is inherently a writer. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I don't think he thinks in terms of the cadence of filmmaking, and it's a film that really disappointed me. 
All right. Um, all right. Now I should get a glass of drink okay. water here because I have a bunch to talk about, and then you'll talk about Survivor, I think. Yes. Okay. So the only movie on this, because this is the end of the year, I'm catching up on stuff. Here's the only movie on my entire list today that is not a new movie, um, but it is new to me. Uh, I watched uh, Fritz Lang's 1933, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. Nice. Which, uh, have you seen it? No. Okay, so I had watched... Uh, it's a longer film, is it not? Uh, this one's just a little over two hours. Okay. Dr. Mabuza, The Gambler, which is the one I watched earlier this yes. year, which is like the four-hour silent right. movie. Right. I had watched, and then I realized, and, I, and then I was like, let me get back into the Dr. Mabuza franchise. Yeah. Um, which So now I have two more to watch, because there's a, he made two in 1933, mm-hmm. this one, and then The Last Will, and then he made a final Mabuza movie in 1960. Wow. called the 1000 eyes of Dr. Mabuza. Um, but this is a, a sequel. Uh, it's a sequel to Mabuza, the gambler, but also, you know, wouldn't need to have seen it. Yeah. It's a completely standalone story that, um, I thought of, here's the two movies I thought of, um, while I watched Dr. Mabuza, the Gambler. I thought, I, I thought of the wizard of Oz and I thought of Christopher Nolan's the dark, the dark Knight, And okay. again, I, I say this every time, but you can, you have to take the IMDb trivia page with a grain of salt, but apparently Christopher Nolan watched and directed Jonathan Nolan to watch the Testament of Dr. Mabuza before making the dark Knight. Hmm. So I was right on in thinking of Mabuza as kind of a Joker like character. Interesting. But the premise of the movie is that he's, uh, still in prison 11 years after the end of Mabuza, the gambler, Mm -hmm. but Dr. Mabuza's whole thing is hypnotism. And so he ends up, he ends up being, it's not, you know, hypnotism isn't real to begin with, but it's especially not in the way that it's depicted in these movies movies. He ends up being the leader of a new criminal gang from his prison cell by hypnotizing one of his, like the chief psychiatrist at the mental institution, like prison that he's at. And that a guy, that guy essentially becomes the crime gang leader by proxy because he's essentially possessed by Dr. Mabuza. Um, so it's kind of, a, it has a, a, you know, a lot of interlocking stories about like the, it's kind of an ensemble. You've got Mabuza who's a small character. You've got the, the lead detective. You've got the criminal gang. You've got the one member of the criminal gang who has a conscience mm-hmm. <coughs> who, who isn't okay necessarily with the increased number of killing that this, uh, these, you know, uh, they're supposed to be bank robbers or whatever, and they keep killing people under Mabuse's uh, uh, direction. So you've got it's a it's kind of a sprawling crime movie, not unlike Heat or The Dark Knight, sure. Um, in, in which things kind of come together at the end. It also has some fantastically creepy imagery in the scenes where where we where, where Fritzling imag- like, illustrates Mabuse exerting his influence over this doctor in which he sort of appears as a hollow figure with like an exposed brain hmm. and like has makeup to make his eyes like, like, uh, like Alita battle angel. I don't know if you've seen the Alita battle angel trailer. I've not. Uh, you're don't do it. It's fucking body horror. Okay. But, um, basically James Cameron has made a, a movie, a live action movie where a character has anime eyes and it's fucking disgusting. It's weird. Uh, anyway, anyway, that's what Mabuse's eyes look like. It's really cool. There's a lot of cool, uh, you know, visual stuff. Um, there's explosions. It, it's like an action crime drama, uh, that is also kind of a, uh, high concept horror movie in a way. Hmm. Uh, it's really, I, I really, really enjoyed it. All right. Moving on to Sebastian Lilio's a fantastic woman. 
Okay. Uh, which is something I've been looking forward to because I really liked his last film, Gloria, uh, which apparently is being funny game style remade by him in America with <laughs> Julianne Moore in the lead role. Um, a fantastical, have you heard of a fantastical? I've not. So, um, uh, it's gotten press for a number of reasons because it's, it's a good movie. Uh, but also Daniela Vega, who's the lead. The character is a trans woman and oh, she okay. is a trans woman. And, um, she's fantastic uh, in the movie. The basic premise is that she lives with her uh, older, she's probably in her thirties, I guess. Um, and she lives with her older boyfriend. Um, and he is a sort of successful, you know, not like fabulously wealthy, but he, mm-hmm. you know, does well for himself. Uh, and then he dies early on and she is essentially, um, because of, a lack of marital status, but also because of prejudices against her being trans, she's essentially cut completely out of his life by his existing family, by his, right. his ex-wife and his son. And she is subjected to, uh, increasingly shocking, um, abuse. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the performance is great. I think Sebastian Lilio as a director, and this was true in Gloria as well. He, no single shot in any of his movies feels perfunctory, but also none feels like Wes Anderson style, like over considered or like calling attention to itself. He just, he seems to always pick the best angle to present everything. Uh, every, every angle, every shot is, is important and is full of life and is full of fire. And again, that matches Daniela Vega's performance. She's, she's terrific here. My only complaint. And I, almost hesitate to make this as a complaint because one thing that I think about a lot, there's something you said, uh, once, um, I think during one of our commentaries, but although I can't remember the context was something about like trying not to be offended on other people's behalf. Sure. So I don't want to, you know, I'm not a trans person. I have not been through this, but I do kind of have sort of the same, a similar feeling to the way I felt about Eliza Hitman's beach rat beach rats earlier this year, which is about a closeted gay man. Mm -hmm. Like some, at a certain point it feels like 90% of the depictions of queer characters in movies is about them being abused or just them suffering. Right. And I like, I wonder like, is this, you know, there has to be more. Do you know what I mean? Like I I feel bad for singling out a fantastic woman because it's a really well-made movie and it's a great, it's a terrific performance. And I, I don't know if I'd watch it again because it gets pretty heavy. Uh, I'll watch it again someday, but it, you know, at a certain point it's, uh, it is tough to watch at more more than one point. But I, again, it's not my place to be bothered by this, but I do think like, uh, I wish this wasn't like, I wish we, didn't define queer people by how much it sucks to be them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's something that you feel bad saying in the same way that I, I feel bad saying it right now that like anytime a Holocaust movie comes out, I was Uh like, I'm sure it's fine. But at the same time, as I've said before, and I'm, I am comfortable saying this, like unless you're bringing something new to this, Mm -hmm now I feel like you're just exploiting something that you know, like for the reason that I feel reluctant to treat this film like any other film, which is like, yeah, we've seen it. Well, of course, like it's a real thing. It's a, it's an atrocity. It's this horrible atrocity and it affected, you know, millions of people. 
And you're counting on that. You're counting on that fact to maybe force me to see it and maybe force me to give it more of a chance than I would otherwise. And now I don't necessarily think it's quite as manipulative as that, but there is after a while, it's just like, are you bringing something new to this or is it just more like, isn't this a terrible thing? Don't you feel bad? Don't you want to like this movie because it made you feel anything? Um, I don't know. That might be, I might be a little bit cynical there, but I know what you mean. Yeah. And you don't want to think that of course not. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I would put this movie like, like I said, if I were a tomato meter critic, I would call this one fresh. Okay. But I have some of the same problems I have with hostels in okay. that it's a terrifically well-made movie that I, uh, have problems with that my, my intellect keeps me from entirely embracing. Okay. Um, okay. Moving on a movie, this a movie I've been meaning to watch for a long time and a movie that, uh, our friend Josh Youngerman has been trying to get me to watch for a long time okay. because he's in it. Uh, it's, uh, and I forget the director's name. Anna Asensio, I think is her name. The movie is called most beautiful Island. Okay. Um, it won the, I think the jury prize at South by Southwest this past year. Um, and it's, Unlike so many movies at this time of year, it's 79 minutes long. Nice. Right there. It's so good. Um, it's almost enough to and, offset some of these other movies. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a, uh, I guess it's a debut feature from this director who also wrote and stars in the movie. Um, and it's a, it's a real surprising little movie in that it, it's uh, a, 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 it's a sort of bracing depiction of what it is like day to day to be in quote unquote undocumented immigrant, Mm -hmm. you know, illegal immigrant or whatever in a place like New York city where you are always on the edge. You are always in the margin and you like, if anything goes wrong, your entire life could go wrong at any point. Um, and so it, it's this very like social realist drama that then, in a really quick turn, but one that works becomes a high concept horror movie. Hmm. But then I don't want to get too far because I don't want to spoil it for people. What I think the thing that really blew me away by at the end is that it goes back, (laughs) which is not what I was expecting. I was expecting once it makes that turn, uh, in which, um, well, she like walks down a set of stairs and Larry Fessenden is down there. And I'm like, oh, okay. oh Larry Fessenden is a movie. This is yeah. a horror movie now. Cause that's what he does. Yeah. It's an art horror movie. He was also uh, in your next. Oh, he's and, come up um, twice. Yeah. Uh, uh, Larry Fessenden's, I guess, uh, accomplice or co coworker in the movie is played by, I'm forgetting his name, but the guy who played Felix in your next. Oh, neat. Um, which I, I didn't recognize. I was like, name. I recognize, I had to look it up. I was like, what do I recognize this guy from? Um, cause in this movie he's Nicholas like, Tucci. That is his name. Yeah. yeah. All right. But in this movie he's like, you know, wearing like a black suit. He's very like, right. made up. His hair slicked back. He, he looks very different. Yeah. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, I, I really think this is a, uh, a, a movie worth, worth seeking out most beautiful Island. Um, and I look for, I definitely look forward to what else on Asensio has coming up. I'm not sure as a horror movie, Tyler, I'm not sure you could stand it because you are an arachnophobe. Very much and so. This is a bug and particularly spider heavy movie. Like mm. the <laughs> spiders play a huge part in, in the movie. Um, I had another spider nightmare the other night. Yeah. Um, and it was 
so horrible. Like I woke up screaming as I do when it's a spider nightmare. And, uh, and it was one of those that like, I still like once I was firmly awake, like I still was like kind of doing like being kind of herky jerky as though they were still on me. Oh, good God. Yeah. So this might be a bit much for me. Um, and then, uh, something I, I was reading, uh, I guess yesterday, you know, after I see a movie, I like to read certain reviews from, mm-hmm. you know, just skip around and look at reviews from people I like and something I hadn't really thought of, but, um, uh, you know, in our, in our current like culture and seek for more uh, search for more equality and stuff, something worth pointing out is uh, another critic pointed out how like the subtle ways in which a horror movie that depends on like naked women in peril Mm -hmm. being directed by a woman, like the subtle ways in which it's presented. Sure. Um, and it was, yeah, really interesting. I almost want to watch it again, uh, for that reason. But yeah, most beautiful Island, definitely check it out. And our friend Josh is in it. Yeah. What? I I don't think I knew he was an actor. Josh Youngerman. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Oh, well, (laughs) I don't interact with him as much as you do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we text. Most of our texts recently have been him occasionally saying, have you seen most beautiful Island? (laughs) Uh, So I got to text him yesterday morning and say, uh, I finally watched it last night. We talked, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, so yeah, good job, Josh. Um, anyway, uh, I feel like I had something else to say about that, but now I can't remember. Anyway, uh, moving on. I got two more. And neither one, of them, neither of them is good. Okay. I saw a movie I really, for multiple reasons, was really excited to see. Last night, uh, I went to see Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. Right. It's dreadful. It's a snooze. Really? The be- The only thing I, you know, I tried to put the Kevin Spacey thing out of my mind while sure. I was watching it. But on the way out of the theater, I was thinking, God, Christopher Plummer is the Oh, the best part of the movie. Think about how much worse this movie would have been yeah. with like old age makeup, Kevin Spacey hamming it up. Whereas yeah. for Plummer's performance is largely understated. Yeah. Uh, of course it is. Yeah. Where I'm like Kevin Spacey would have been, you know, tearing the movie down, shouting at the, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, but it's, that is the consensus that like Christopher Plummer is not merely the best part of the movie, but he is genuinely great. Yeah, it's too bad it's in a movie that is so... I don't understand. Like, I I know that one of the things I've often liked about Ridley Scott is that he can make... He often makes genre films that aren't necessarily beholden to the tropes of the genre. Right. But I think the way that plays out here is, unfortunately, he's made a thriller that is completely thrillless. Mm. It's so inert, yeah. this movie. Everything takes way too long. Like, there's literally a part where there's a cliffhanger where we don't know if the kidnapped kid is dead or alive. Yeah. And the movie takes its time, takes so long meandering around getting to the reveal that I stopped caring. (laughs) I was like, well, I guess we're just going to find out if he's dead or alive. I mean, it's historical and we know he's alive, but um, because you know, the guy, well, if you don't know the story, you might uh, not know. Well, I guess I ruined it. Um, but that's, that keeps happening in this movie. And like, even like however you feel about Mark Wahlberg, I've often found him to be a very energetic screen presence mm-hmm. that even in something truly dreadful, like Patriot's day last year, he keeps things moving throughout the scene. Yeah. He can't even, even he can't do that here. Michelle Williams has given nothing of a character to work with. Uh, I don't understand what like this woman is supposed to be about. I, I, I couldn't believe watching the movie how bad it was and how boring it is Wow! for a movie that's about 
It's a fascinating story. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and then even, I almost laughed at one point. Um, when, uh, it finally gets to like an actual action sequence where like the Italian police are raiding this compound where they think that the kid might be held. It's an actual action sequence. And then this guy starts using slow-mo and I'm like, Oh, come on. We almost had some life in the movie here. Um, I, I couldn't believe how, how bad it was. And then, uh, so I came home and I was like, let me throw on this screener. I got, I've been wanting to see this for a few months. It also ended up being terrible. This one you saw, I think, I think you saw it. Uh, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris's battle of the sexes. Yes. It's so bad. There's stuff that I like about it, but it just feels like like, uh, maybe not a complete misfire. Again, there are things I like about it, but it's, uh, yeah, Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I think, yeah, I'm actually remembering what you said because I think I felt the same way that I would rather see a movie about, about Billy, uh, Billy, Billy Jean King. Yeah. Yeah. Billy Jean King, like, coming out of the closet and falling in love with a woman for a first time and what that did to her marriage. Like yeah. she's married to a, you know, a decent man, or at least as he's portrayed in the movie, I guess yeah. uh, I looked it up less so necessarily in real sure. life, but the idea of this decent man who you like loves her, but is coming to terms with the fact that she'll never love him in the same way. Yeah. And she's like letting herself live the way that she uh, feels like the stuff that's about that, which is relegated mostly to the first half of the movie yeah. is the best stuff. But it felt like they were like, well, this battle of the sexist thing is yeah, that's why you know her. <laughs> yeah. So let's make that movie. I didn't care about Steve Carell ever in the movie, um, which is not to his, uh, I don't think the filmmakers cared about him. I don't think it's against his performance, but I, I just didn't care about any of that. I'm trying to think if I didn't care about him. I think I, I mean, he's a supporting character, so they don't really... He doesn't have much of an arc. It's more just, here's some things but about him. Do you think the directors would describe him as a supporting character? Because there's enough stuff that's just him that it feels like sometimes they think they're making a two-hander, but it is really the Billie Jean King story, right? And I think um, that's part of the disconnect, is that yeah, that it is... I think if you were to look at screen time, it probably is more balanced than we think it is. It's yeah. just that there's no life to the Steve Carell stuff. So it, f- the movie feels more full and rich when it's with the, the Emma Stone stuff and his character, you know, his performance is so over the top in a way that the character is right. That I could see them as filmmakers being fooled yeah. into thinking like, Oh, look, he's big as life. It's, it's absolutely, it's, it's their movie. It's like, yeah, I enjoy what he is doing, but it's her movie. And I still think I, I don't remember if you, I said this, but I don't remember if you remember that like there comes a moment when her husband says like, it's like, you know, Hey, you're just a phase. So was I like tennis is her real love. And I was like, what? Yeah. I don't, you haven't earned that at all. Yes. I had the, uh, pretty much the exact same thought. Yeah. Um, I also back to the Steve Carell stuff and this is just the curse of like the middle-aged actress, but like why, why do you need even Elizabeth Shue in that role? That's yeah. a, it's a nothing role. Yeah. It's much like, uh, I know you didn't see Mark felt and you shouldn't, but like Diane Lane has this sort of like yeah. nothing, just wife role. And it's a bummer. It's like, this is Elizabeth. She was great. Like, what is she doing? Like, this is, this is a bummer. Um, I did my, uh, you know, no offense to you, but my wife makes me laugh more than anyone that I know. Um, you you might be second. Um, but, uh, and I feel bad saying this because I have long been, eh, actually I've always, always been a little bit on the fence, but I like Sarah Silverman, but sure. 
everything she's doing in this movie is the wrong choice. <laughs> she's so hammy and over the top. Yeah. And my wife, uh, my wife had seen it before and I was like, I can't believe how bad Sarah Silverman is in the movie. My wife's, my, I won't, it won't be as funny uh, now. My wife's impression did in her impression of Sarah Silverman in Bella Sexes, which is just smoke up girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, uh, that's yeah. the thing is like, and it happens a lot with, you know, period pieces, especially if it's like, 60s 70s or 80s is you just get it all feels so false everything feels like i think emma stone is doing what she can but everything feels like the essence of what it is instead of the actual thing like like oh look at the hair look at the costumes look at the it's like yeah i feel like i'm looking at costumes not clothes yeah and i feel like i'm looking at the hair and makeup department as opposed to she went to a salon you know it just and and the 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 way she is playing her character it just seems very i don't know uh one last note that i could look it's not that big of a problem but it's something i could do without in movies going forward but the uh the period piece that opens with the vintage version of the studio's title card from the era in which the movie oh, is sure. set what am i supposed to do with that at this point it's been done to death <laughs> well how am i supposed to react yeah you know, it's not like, like hey, look, to, look who uh, has access to the archives. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't lend anything. Um, it's it's too conspicuous in a way. Yeah. If you're going to make a movie in that style, okay, but you didn't. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's made with a very modern sensibility. Um, okay, so that's it for me. You have some TV to talk about. And yeah. another thing. Uh, yes, I'll talk about this first. Uh, so every year, Jen and I do a different Christmas thing, uh, usually a performance of some kind. Uh, we do the performance uh, in which we just sing Christmas carols on a street corner. Um, joking, of course. Yeah. We go and see a performance. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, and we saw it was essentially like a reading, but it was staged like an old-timey radio show at the Pasadena Playhouse of Miracle on 34th Street, featuring, among others, uh, Alfred Molina as Chris Kringle and uh, Perry Gilpin from Frasier um, as, uh, I don't remember the name of the character, but uh, kind of the, the cynical uh, female lead. Uh, and various other, uh, Beth Grant was in it. Um, okay. With Perry Gilpin from... From Frasier. She played Roz? as... Roz, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then Jim Rash playing multiple characters, and he was delightful. And it was just... Uh, it was just... And so the, the actors all have, like, their scripts in front of them. Because it is treated like a radio show, there's a guy, like, with his sound... With his sound equipment or, like, his various props. And so, like... if you The idea is, like, if you were to shut your eyes, then this would be, like, a radio thing. So he has, like, a tiny little you know, two foot door that he opens and closes anytime somebody comes in and, and it's quite delightful and more so than an actual play. Like there's a part where Alfred Molina is saying to the little girl, he, as Chris Kringle, he's like, he's like, you've heard of the British nation and the French nation. Well, I'm talking about the imagination and like there are groans in the audience. And then he just looks at us. He, he just looks at and he goes, it's what's written here. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very funny. And, uh, and it just seemed, it was such an interesting way of, of staging something. And it really just felt like everyone was together that we weren't just watching a performance, but because, you know, when the guy sound guy holds up applause, we applaud. So like, it's like, we're all in this thing together and it's a really fun experience. I liked it a lot. So, um, okay. But what was it called again? What was it? What was it called? Miracle on 34th street. I I guess Uh, what's the, 
the theater or the theater group. Like oh, the Pasadena there? Playhouse. Pasadena. And it was only, it's only running for like a week. Um, but, uh, by the time this goes up, I think you might have one more day to see it. Maybe okay. two. Um, but if you're in the California, if you're in the, in the Los Angeles area, check it out. It's actually quite good. Um, okay. Last for me is Survivor. Uh, the season finale was last night. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed the season um, for the most part. There are actually a lot of players that I really liked and would like to see back. Uh, and then the finale came along and boo hiss. <laughs> this is absolute horseshit. Here's why. It's not that I dislike the winner. It's that the you can see the producers manipulating, not the footage, the game. Mm. There was a guy that they clearly wanted to win, and they did everything they could to give him every chance. There was a couple episodes ago, he played uh, an immunity idol. Essentially, I don't know if you know how these work. Nope. Everybody votes, and then they're about to read the votes, and then you have this thing. It's called the immunity idol. It's hidden. If you find it and you don't tell anybody about it, or you can tell them, it doesn't matter, and you play it before the votes are read, and it nullifies any votes for you. Okay, but there's a risk. There might not be any votes for you, and now you've wasted it. Mm. So that's the immunity idol. So he has one. He pulls it out and says, I do have it. And then somebody else says, well, I don't know if you're going to play that. And so he then walks up to Jeff, hands it to him. He says, I'm playing that now. And Jeff says, this is an, this is a, an immunity idol, and he does have to specify it is real because some people fake it. And he says, this is a real idol. And it's like, and this is before the votes were cast. It's like, that's not how the immunity idol works. But Jeff, who is also an executive producer, and he's not, and like, it's, it's dramatic that this guy is like doing this because he's kind of the underdog at this point. And he's a guy who's like, he wears a cowboy hat. He has a beard. He's a former vet. He deals with PTSD. He has a good story and he's a pretty good guy all around. But like, so in that instance, like, okay, they're kind of subverting the rules, but I could see it being but a little how are bit they subverting the rules because the votes hadn't been, nobody had voted yet. If Jeff had oh. said, if, if he had handed it to Jeff and Jeff said, I can't authenticate this until the votes are read, you know, or until, until you guys have voted, like you have done this prematurely to make a point, but I, I can't say that this is right yet. Oh, okay. I see. But I he see. did anyway. Like yeah. Jeff allowed the rules to be subverted because it made for more, you know, it was more dramatic. Okay. Fair enough. Not fair enough, but yeah. Yeah. But they add, so it's down to the final four and this guy, Ben needs to win immunity and he doesn't. And it's a very dramatic immunity challenge. And I think that, and he was, he was enemy number one. Everyone knew it. And I think the producers realized we need to give this guy as many chances as we can because his story is the best. So they said like, whoever wins this last immunity challenge, they get, here's, you get a little advantage, a secret advantage after you win. And the advantage is, cause there's four people and there's three at the final tribal council. The advantage is you get to pick one person that will be sitting alongside you. And then the remaining two, they have to do a fire making challenge and whoever wins that gets to be in the final three. So basically you can get into the final three without ever, you know, without surviving a tribal council. He did not, he did not win immunity and he did not have an idol. Mm -hmm. He would have been voted out. He would not have made the final three, but 
by by doing this fire making challenge he still could have lost mm-hmm. but they gave him the but they gave him a chance that no, that i guarantee would not have existed if he'd been voted out at six or even five that is and that by the way is pretty much the consensus like every fan is like that was the producers making the decision they wanted to if he had lost so be it he lost but like and then they do a little recap during the the uh the reunion episode where they talk about like you know but then in a twist you know jeff says like but then in a twist ben was given one more you know he got one more chance like oh did he get one more chance it just fell out of the sky or did you guys decide you don't want this ptsd having vet who talks about his family and his wife who saved his life when he got out of the out of the service which of course and and he's a nice enough guy and he's been the underdog like you don't want him voted out so you have done everything you can short of just giving him another another immunity idol and saying like no you can play it at four aside from that you've done everything you can to give him every chance and then he he got it and like and it's it is absolute horseshit like i am i and a lot of other fans are genuinely angry like twists happen right and left like they throw little stuff into the game but like this has the it has the fingerprints of production mm-hmm. all over it. And I am very upset. Like as a fan, I almost don't want to watch the next season on principle because fuck these people. Like it's already produced enough. There's already like, and in, and there's manipulation in the editing, but it's manipulation of stuff that people have actually done on their own. Like why not just have it be a scripted series now? Like it just really bothers me. You should start a petition to have, this season removed from canon like those uh fan, fanboys who did for the last jedi thing oh really oh yeah <laughs> enough people have actually said this season will always have an asterisk for me and i agree yeah because if he if production doesn't do that he's absolutely voted out he he does not make it to that final three and there's a different winner wow there are always accusations that project runway is fixed, but they've never been that <laughs> bold about it. <laughs> and they, and one thing that probe said at the reunion, he goes, he goes this trip, like he clearly knew cause no one was accusing it yet. Cause it was the night of, but he clearly knew that people were going to accuse them. And he said, he goes, he goes this twist. He goes, it's going to come back. And it's like, if it comes back at all, uh-huh. it'll be for one season and then they're going to drop it. And the only reason they're bringing it back is to legitimize this thing. It's a thing you can do very easily. And like, I know who cares it's survivor, but it really bothers me. No, I totally get it. So, yeah. And it's a show I love. And this was a season I liked and now it will always have an asterisk for me. Well, um, I guess we should stop before we get to three hours.